Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lichtenstein. This week we'll be speaking about Zionism. Over the last few weeks we spoke about all the Muhammad, so Zionism came up. And a number of people had asked me if I would invite Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. He speaks at a lot of rallies. And um, we, we tried a number of times. We couldn't get him on because he said he doesn't, only on three conditions, we don't interrupt him which I agreed to do, even though it is difficult for me, I have to tell you. We don't disagree with him. That already was... Uh, and we don't debate. We don't answer. And the last two were impossible. I said, it just goes negative, the concept of Mulham Tashal Torah. So we couldn't get him. So we found him on three Arab sites, uh, Palestine podcast, a number of other places. Uh, basically, among the, in Gaza, he's the Rava Rashi. And uh, from these three Palestinian podcasts, we took clips, I think eight or nine or ten clips, and we put them on, and we will respond to them as if he was on the air. And then we will have, after him, we will have Rabbi Yehuda Geber, a noted historian, we call him from Eretz Yisrael. We wanted to hear what the, sort of the irreligious, the secular, believe about Zionism. We have Dr. Einat Wilf, a member of the Knesset, former member, author of numerous books on Zionism. And then from Harvard, uh, we have Professor Derek Penslar, historian, author, professor of Jewish history in Harvard. So we have both from the, uh, you know, all the way from the very right wing, we have the, the left wing to the center. It should make for a very interesting discussion. People are going to be upset at me, which is fine. They say, you're supposed to be um, unbiased. And usually I try hard. It's not easy for me. But as a gist, Yiddish blut, it's very hard for me to be unbiased. So I lose myself a few times. I, you can actually see where my opinion is a number of times in this podcast. I would like to say uh, a vert on Hanukkah. I actually spoke uh, this week in Manhattan. And they said a lot of people are very upset about the war, so I felt this was a, a good discussion to have. And I'll, I'll tell you, Bikitsa, what I said. It was a longer discussion there. The menorah is seen almost as a symbol of Klal Yisrael. Why do I say that? Not because it's on the Israeli uh, banners, etc., but because in other words, the, the Magen David is a relatively new thing. The menorah, if you look at coins that go back thousands, literally thousands of years, they have the menorah on them. There's coins that go back to the days of the Chash Menorim that they've uncovered. You can Google them and they have the menorah. And by the way, the menorah that they have is not like the Rambam's menorah. It's not that slanty, angular menorah. It's the rounded menorah that you and I grew up thinking was the menorah. Chabad went, Bederach Shita Harambam, but if you look at the coins, they're not like the Shitas Harambam, and it's, it is a Tzaruchin on the Rambam from these coins. They're all round menorahs. The question is, why did they pick the menorah? I mean, there's so many, there's Taryag mitzvahs, there's so, you could have a Shoifer, you could have Eloi Shal Yitzchak, I mean, it's endless amount of things. You could have the Arba Minim. Why did they pick the menorah as the symbol of Klal Yisrael? That's the question that I ask. And I, also, it's interesting, the, the Hanukkah menorah, Hanukkah comes out at an interesting time of the year. It's almost always, except in Ibiyar, during the winter solstice, the times when the nights are the longest, and then they turn into light, right? The morale talks about this. What is the significance of Hanukkah coming out during the winter solstice? So I want to share a machshava. Nietzsche has a famous quote. He says, hope is the last and greatest evil. It allows people suffering to go on in perpetuity. He held hope was evil. Many of the philosophers of his days, Schopenhauer, um, Kafka, the trial, it's about the absurdity of hope, uh, Demu, many of them went in his uh, absurdism, hope, not logical. Klal Yisrael, here's an interesting thing, and I'll bet you didn't know it, has many words for hope. Tikva, Kaveh El Hashem, Shomar, Aviv Shomar Es Hadover, about this week, about Yosef, Yachil, Yachil Yisrael El Hashem, Litzapot, Tzipisi Li Yeshua, 
Shayev Shoafti, to be Shayev is to hope. Sikui, what are the Sikuyim? What's the opposite of hope? Okay, this you didn't know. There's not a single word in the Hebrew language that's the opposite of hope. Oh, there is a word. It's called Yish. It doesn't appear a single time in Tanakh. It appears many, many times by Rav Nachman, not a single time in Tanakh. Maybe 10 different synonyms for hope, not a single word for Yish. What does that mean to you? I'll tell you what to me it means. When you hope, you can dream. Even if in a great darkness, Hanukkah always comes out in the greatest darkness, the longest night. And in the longest night, that's where we light a candle. The candle represents light a candle in the darkness. Light, try to light the darkness. Have a moon, have a have hope. When you have hope, you can dream. When you have hope, you have the courage to wait for a better day. For, for the light, because the light is coming, it's coming. After the longest darkness, then the light starts coming. Hanukkah is always during the winter solstice, because we don't agree. Klal Yisrael, at its essence, doesn't agree with Nietzsche. And the whole story of Klal Yisrael, where did we come from? Avram. Avram and Sarah, unable to give birth till 90 and 100. Absurd. All the others, the Mois were Akaris, because that, in the darkness, do you still have the courage to hope? And it's not just about the Uma of Klal Yisrael, but on an individual level, there are so many darknesses. People have darknesses in their family. Could be a big darkness. People could have a darkness in their marriage. People could have a ma- darkness in Parnassa. People could have a darkness in their mental health. Big darknesses. And what's the message? No, we don't believe that hope is the, the greatest evil. We believe Fakert. It's ten synonyms of hope, and there is no word for Yish. And if you look at this week's parasha, Yosef, what does it say about Yosef? Yosef was filled with hope. There is nobody in parashas in Sefer Bereshis who had a darker experience. It's true, Cain killed Hevel. That was a bad thing. But for ten brothers to sell their brother, ten, it wasn't a random thing. Ten brothers, no greater act of evil happens in the whole Sefer Bereshis. Something that the Rabbi Nishon can't forgive them for. Right? It's the greatest act. But Yosef, he always maintains hope. How do we know that? Because what does it say when Yosef is sold? He's sold to Paitifera, right? Swiss Pari. And it says he's Moitzachain Be'ene Kolrayev. Did you ever see a depressed person, an angry person, a frustrated person? Is that person Moitzachain Be'ene Kolrayev? How do you do that? How can you, in such a darkness, how can you be happy? There's only one way, to have hope. And the same thing when he, after he becomes, he gave him everything, he's a shaylet and base, and then he gets sold, right? And he gets sold and put in the dungeon, he gets sold down the river, he gets framed, and he gets put in the dungeon. And what does it say? Again, he's, he's again, and you see how he's not depressed. He says to the Sarah Oifim and the Sarah Bashkim, your face, your countenance does not look today like it did yesterday. If somebody's wrapped up in their own grieving, anger, furious about the evils that are done to him, about the, the wrong, the lack of justice, can he tell if somebody's mood is not the other? Yosef was never there. Yosef hoped. And when you hope, you can dream. So what is the Hanukkah Menorah? When we go out and I light outside in the, in the night, you go into the night and you light the Menorah. You're not just lighting a candle. You're making a commitment. You're making like a Shvua B'Nikita's Chayfetz. And what is that commitment to? 
I will be a Meyachel. I will be a Makave. I will be a Metzapali Yeshua. I will be Shayef, and I will reject Yish of any type. I have the, I will have the courage in any darkness to light a candle. A personal darkness, a family darkness, a societal darkness, a, a darkness that affects all of Klal Yisrael. I will have the courage that tomorrow will be better. That is the Shua Benakita's Chayfers that we make when we light the Hanukkah candle. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33-011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. Before we go to our guests, I want to do some uh, housekeeping. We get a lot of calls from Bachram. This program is not for Bachram. Bachram should be learning Gemara, Rashi Taisvis with Rishonim, right, with the Rambam and Shulchan Aruch. There's two yeshivas last week. We got a hundred calls from each yeshiva. Yeshiva Makar Chaim in Lakewood, I think that's Rav Paula's yeshiva, must have gotten a hundred calls. And I know the Bachram love our program, and it seems that the Bachram and Makar Chaim, it seems all they do is learn our program. But you should be learning Bab Metziah, Bab Basri, Vamis, Ksubis, Gitin Kedushin. It's not for Bachram, it's Falabatim, it's for all the people. And then Yeshivas Eitz Chaim, that's under Rav Shapiro. Again, we got a hundred calls from there. The Bachram seem to know every prod of the programs. These programs, even though they are halacha programs, they're not for Bachram. These are mostly um, concepts, they're conceptual, even the halacha. That's, it's, you know, you don't, you don't learn Bachram Hulchas neither either. There's, there's a time and a place to learn everything. So the Bachram of Bakar Chaim, Barav Paula, Yeshivas Eitz Chaim, Barav Shapiro, learn Gemara Rashi Taisvis. If you ever want to call up and talk and learn Gemara Rashi Taisvis, I will absolutely take the call on the Gitten Kedush and Yavam. I'll be happy to do it. I learned all these Yeshivas and Masechtis. Happy to talk to you, but not, this program is not for you. Let's go to our riddles of the week. Hayomer Lasher al Bring them into the house. And let's make a meal. Let's shecht something. What does it say? He shechted in front of them. He took the git hanasha out in front of them. So they knew that it was kosher. Rashi says that they should know that it was Geshacht, and it wasn't, uh, and Rashi says why. The Shvatim umakayim the mitzvahs, and they only ate kasha. So here's the Shaila. Shchitas nachri, most Rishayim hold, Taisvis and the Rosh, that minatayra ein shchitas nachri shchita, because he's not a barzvicha. But the Rambam holds, and it's Bachleikis in the Rambam, Tekesef Mishnah says that if his machshava is not for Avodah Zarah, it's Mutam and Atayra, Tolomid Rabban and Asa. So a Nachri She'enu Eved Avodah Zarah, Shechitasai Muteres Divrei Tayra. The Shach Agavurcha argues on the Kesef Mishnah. So we have Taisvis and the Rosh and the Shach all hold that Shechitas Nachri Zasa, but the Kesef Mishnah holds that it's Muta. So Lachira Bishlamalita Kesef Mishnah is Pshat and the Rambam Nachri. That's not Shaykhid for Avodah Zarah Shchitas Eksheira. So it's understood why Yosef Shechted in front of them, and Rashi says they were able to eat. They were makbid on Kasher. So he showed them it's Kasher, so they eat. But according to Taisvis the Rush 
And according to the Shach, that it's also, he holds in Ram, that's also Sarachian. What did he show them the base Hashchita for? To say, in other words, now you could eat. They couldn't eat. El Amai, you're going to say that they ate because it was Pikuach Nefesh, because they knew they had no choice. It was like, why did he have to show it to them at all? They anyway weren't eating it. In other words, he obviously was showing it to them because he held it was kosher and they could eat. According to Rav Rishayinim, and according to the Shach and the Ramam, it's not. So what's Pshad in, what's Pshad in why he did it? El Amai, you're going to say, maybe from here you have a raya that Rashi holds like the case of Mishnah. But you don't see that anybody brings it, but it would be Lechaira Raya. But Lechaira, regardless, according to Taisfis and the uh, Rush, What's Taka Pshad in, uh, in this Gemara? Paralam Beis Hashchita. That's one hour on this Suda that they had. The next hour it says, Vayishtu Vayishkru Imai. How could they drink? Yayin Nesach is also Mitayra. Not only Beshti, it's also Behana. So they had no idea. It's not like he squeezed the grapes in front of them. Shaloi Bifnei Avaydazara, where it's Yayin Stam, that would be Motzebid Rabbanan. Right? Here, he didn't make the wine in front of them. So the wine was asa. So say the meat, like Taisus, the Russian, and the Shach is asa. Say the wine is asa. So what's going on over here? How could Rashi, how could the Gemara say that? They did it because of concern for them to show them that it's kasha. They didn't know that it's kasha. That's a aura on the Suda that Joseph made for his brothers. Now, let's go to our program. Our first guest tonight will be an abstentia, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. Yaakov Shapiro frequently speaks at rallies against Zionism, and the Satmar, I think, mistakenly believe that he understands the shita of the Divrayoil. We invited him on, and he gave conditions. He says, we can't disagree, can't argue, and that's not what this program is all about. And if you wanted a program where people speak and give speeches without arguing, you shouldn't be listening here without any debate. We have Mulhamtish al so where did we get it from? We downloaded a number of clips of him, and we got them on the internet from three sites. Islamic City, that's, uh, you know, an anti-Israel Islamic site. The Palestine Pod, another place of Grace Ahavis Yisrael. And the last is from a show with Nura Saleh Iraka. She's a, a professor at Rutgers who specializes in being a vocal critic of the state of Israel. So on these three podcasts, Yaakov spoke, and I guess they didn't argue with him when he took apart Israel. I asked, you know, the Satmar who asked him to speak at their uh, gatherings, because he's quite erudite, his vocabulary is very good. Would the Satmar Rebbe, could anybody see the Holy Divrayoil speaking on the Palestine pod? Or with Nura Saleh Iraka, the woman who was a very vocal, famous critic of Israel, or the Islamic city. I mean, would the would the Divra Yoel agree to be the Rafa Rashi of Gaza? You know, the Navi says he says Hatsur Ishlafi that for to purify silver you use a pot, a certain type of a pot where the dirt would flow to the top. Vizov was Tsur. And how do you know who a person is? Ishlafi Mahalaloi. So I don't I never met Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro, but I know on these three sites he has a million downloads and tens of thousands of likes. They love him. 
So the Gazans love Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. So I say, Ish lefi I don't believe the Divrei Yael would have done that. But let's listen to these clips, and we will take the liberty of disagreeing. And if you think I misunderstand them, or if Rabbi Yaakov wants to come on and respond, we'd be more than happy to have him, or anybody who wants to disagree, we're happy to have you too. Here's the first clip from Rabbi Shapiro. The incompatibility between Judaism and Zionism. Many Jews believe, wrongly, that Zionism is either part of Judaism or is compatible with Judaism or is even the main part of Judaism. All of those are actually false. Zionism was created to negate Judaism. Zionism was created to replace Judaism. According to Zionism, Jewish identity is political. It's national. According to Judaism, Jewish identity is completely religious. A Jew, by definition, is somebody who accepts the Jewish religion or who is defined as a Jew by the Jewish religion. According to Zionism, Jewish identity is political. And it's defined the same way we define the identity of any nationals, like a Frenchman or a Canadian. According to Judaism, Jewish identity is centered only around God and God's teachings, nothing else. According to Zionism, Jewish identity is centered around a nation-state, which they randomly decided is the nation-state that was created in 1948 that they call Israel. According to Judaism, a Jew is supposed to have certain character traits. He's supposed to eschew violence. He's supposed to oppose violence. He's supposed to be disgusted by violence. Even in the olden days when Jews had to defend themselves, that was considered nothing to glorify. Jews don't have military heroes. We have religious heroes. Our heroes are the righteous. Our heroes are the scholars. The heroes of the Zionists are the war heroes. The Jews have no national sites where wars took place, such as the Alamo in America. Jews are not militant. Jews are religious. Jews are, the way the Bible describes us, a nation of priests and a holy people. If people want to retain their Jewish identity, if they want to resist the propaganda that is churned out by Zionists and Zionism every day, then it is vital that they take proactive steps to defend themselves against it. Look, the Zionist propaganda is everywhere. So this is right and wrong. He's right that Zionism, at an exception, was an anti-religious movement. I mean, Herzl clearly wanted to make a secular state and have a national Israel that had nothing to do with religion, as did a Pinsker, a Ben-Gurion, a Chada'am, etc. So that's that's true. I mean, this whole part about there are no Jewish warriors, we just finished Hanukkah. Did anybody here hear of Yehuda Maccabee? But that's sort of a, you know, a sideshow. But I want to go to the main argument. The, yes, the initial, let's assume that the original Zionists were anti, even though there were many, you know, who were pro, the Kalisha, right? The Chayvetzian were all Grace Erlachidin, but the leaders were anti-religious. We, would, we could agree with that. So here's the question. Why is that relevant? That was a hundred years ago. Today's Zionists, in other words, in Israel, are the biggest supporters of Torah in the world, the biggest supporters of yeshivas in the world, the biggest supporters of Frumkite in the world. You don't have a May Sharm in America. You don't have where they, even in Williamsburg, they don't, or Lakewood, they don't close the streets on Shabbos. 
And it's turned into, really, Eretz Yisrael, Bnei Brak, they closed the whole city. It's out of respect. They respect that the Frumbi didn't have a right to run their lives the way they see fit. And that's why you're able to have even the, the Belzerov, Arla Belza, who was a big anti-Zionist before the war, when he came to Eretz Yisrael, what did he say? He said, I thought they would rip my Shrimal off everything I heard about the Zionists. He says, I was wrong. I had no idea that there would be Kiryat Bells today in Eretz Yisrael. We didn't say Kiryat Bells, but it wasn't there, but the, the way they were treated. So this is a very anachronistic, dated argument. You know, my son, when he was in Eretz Yisrael, he ate by a friend of mine. So uh, his son-in-law was by the table, and he asked my son, he said, so where do you go? Did your family take you on vacation? Your father would go? He said, yeah, my father last year took us to Rome. I wanted to see if there were any Kisvei Kodesh in the Vatican. So this fellow tells my son, he says, this younger man, he was in, in his 30s, aren't the Romans dangerous? He learned about, you know, Raimi, Raimi Shel Edom. So my son looked at him, he said, yeah, 2,000 years ago, Rome was very dangerous for Jews. But, you know, today, Italy is just a vacation spot. And I would say the same thing about Germany. Who would you imagine going to Germany? I went to see the Hafloz Keva. Could you imagine going to Germany in, in 38 or, or 45? Or, 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 you would have been killed, right? Or, or go, going to Spain. I went to Spain to see you know, the, you know, the Makam of the originally the Lathe of the Rambam, etc. Uh, the beautiful statue that they built over there of the Rambam, where, where Rabbeinu Yoyna lived and where the Ramban lived, etc. But um, Spain during the Inquisition for a few hundred year period was terrible. But that was then, and today, all of Israel is full of Mercedes, because life has moved on. So Herzl isn't here anymore, and Pinsker isn't here, and Echad Am isn't here, and your average Israeli has no idea what, they, what these people's shittas were. And if you ask your average Israeli, what does he feel about Israel? He says, it's a nice place to live, we live here, we want to protect it so we can live here, and it has all kinds of people over here. So this whole Zionism, and you know, the Chafetz Chaim and Rebel Hanan, Chafetz Chaim said the Zionists were like Amalekim. Yeah, he's right. You know what they did to the yeshivas in, in Europe? The Zionists. The, the from a Zionist, the Bundistan, they were tearing people away from the yeshivas. I would ask you, we have the show about lobbies had 50,000 downloads, so we have a lot of listeners. Does any one of our listeners know somebody who left yeshiva because he became a Zionist? In fact, I would say, the only Zionists left in Eretz Yisrael are the Frumma Zionists. You see, Nebuch, every day now, there was one yeshiva I just saw uh, that seven of its boys right, were killed in, in, in Gaza. And they sent around a 15-page tickle Torah that one of the boys who was killed wrote. So, so was the Zionism at its inception bad? Does it have anything to do with today? That's very dated. Let's go to the next clip. There is no country in the world that speaks for the Jewish people, that is the Jewish country, and every single country in the world is to us, as far as countries are concerned, no more Jewish than Ukraine. There's only one country in the world, and that's Israel. One country in the world that claims to be the nation state of people that are not its citizens, that never were its citizens, don't plan on being its citizens. It means two things. If Israel would be the country of the Israelis, that means whether you're Jewish or not, Israel's your country. Uh, but because Israel claims that it's the state of the Jews, not the Israelis, you could be an Israeli citizen, but there's a nation state law that says that national self-determination rights only apply to the Jews. That means, A, if you are an Israeli citizen, but you're not Jewish, Israel is not your nation state. Two, it means that if you are a Jew such as myself, who does not live in Israel, I'm not an Israeli citizen, my father's family is from Poland, on my mother's side, they're from England and Russia. This means that Israel claims, because I'm born Jewish, that Israel is my state. And that's absolutely not true. I have nothing to do with some country in the Middle East.
So his point here is, is that having the state of Israel is of no value. It's like Ukraine. Um, having a nation state is of no value. What do we want to have with some country in the Middle East, the Ukraine, etc.? I mean, what's the value of having a nation state of Israel and Eretz Yisrael? I'll tell you why. I can go to the Kaisel. I can go to the Kei Rachel. I can go to Eretz Hashem Olekecha Doirish Eisetamid. Eini Hashem Olekecha Bamireishis Hashana Vadachris Shana. I could go to the Eretz Yisrael, that we say every day in benching, that I very likely, or very possibly, wouldn't be, likely would not be able to go to otherwise. But more than that, halachically, the Ramban in Sefer HaMitzvahs, the Essen, Sheshachem Ramba Mitzvah Dalet, what does he say? He says, Bizman Hazeh, there's a mitzvah Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. And the people who are living in Eretz Yisrael are Makayim a mitzvah. And what does it say about Yishev Eretz Yisrael? The Gemara in Ksubis Kuf Yeralaf Amid Beis Hador Eretz Yisrael Shari B'Lei Avain. Even the Zionists there must be Shari B'Lei Avain. And what does the Gemara say? Amr Eb Yirmiya Baraba Amr Eb Yechanan Kolam Mahalich Arba Amis Eretz Yisrael Muftach Leishu Ben Olam Haba. None of this would be. So what do you say? I don't care. To me, it's just Ukraine. And what does it say? Lo'olam yodur adam beretz Yisrael afilu be'ir sheru ba'akam the Gemara Unksubis Kuf Yer Aleph Amin Beis va'al yodur bechutz laretz afilu be'ir sheru be'Yisrael shekal ador beretz Yisrael doyma kemisha yesh lo'yaloika v'kal ador bechutz laretz doyma kemisha ein lo'yaloika. So it's not Ukraine. Ukraine is misha ein lo'yaloika and Eretz Yisrael ador beretz Yisrael is kemisha yesh lo'yaloika. The Chassam Soifa writes. That somebody who lives in Eretz Yisrael, and he's Oisik, not only in Karka, he writes two places, he Karka, Gufa, Mitzvah, Mishub Yishev Eretz Yisrael, a farmer in Eretz Yisrael, every tomato he plants, the Chassam Saifa, not a modern Orthodox rabbi, the Chassam Saifa, is Makai Mitzvah Yishev Eretz Yisrael. And then he says, So if you're a computer program in Eretz Yisrael, if you learn how to be a blacksmith in Eretz Yisrael, the lowest labor, you know what you are? We'll post all our marmakayimits, of course, like we always do. So he calls it Ukraine and Chazal call it Doimel Lamishi Yeshla Kaladar Bechutzlar to Mishein Leyalika, and somebody who's Eretz Yisrael is Yeshla Yalika. So we have a, a slight disagreement with uh, Reb Shapiro over here. We consider Zionism, the idea that Jews are a nationality, a form of idol worship. Somebody who's a Zionist, who's also an Orthodox Jew, is no different than the Orthodox Jews in biblical times who <laughs> worshipped the Baal, who were religious Jews that also worshipped idols. Yeah. They are religious idol worshippers. If he believes that the state of Israel is the state of the Jews, the nation of the Jews, yes, that's idol worship. No question about it. If you believe that Israel is a state of Jews, you're over the Avodah The concept of having a national state, because Judaism is just a religion, it's not a state. Statehood is Avodah Right? That's the argument. Well, here's the problem with that. The Achiezer... And Igris Achiezer, of course, we'll put it online, talks with great acclaim. He says, Halavai, we should be able to live and have a country of Eretz Yisrael, but it should be Bosses al Hamadina. He wanted the Chuke Hamadina should be al which if one day it would be Rav Yehudim, Rav from Avada would be that way. But he's talking about having a Medina there. Right? And Igris, Rav Chaim he says the same thing. 
in the Igris or Mrs. Alan Meltzi says the same thing. If we could make a Medina Alpitaira, would be the best imaginable thing. How could you have a Medina? A Medina Zavaydazara. That's a nationalistic state. That's a member of the UN. That can't be. So it's mamish. That having a national state is an Ayvid Avaydazara. Harav Tzvi Pesach Frank, you have a letter here, in Goyen Ha'ira, Amud 362 says the same thing. Halavai says, if we have a Medina, Avadat Shabi, Al Pichukei Torah. These were G'day Le'elam. Zionism is is an incredible propaganda machine. Incredible. You know, to the Jews, they say, well, you have to support Israel, otherwise... All the Jews are going to die. They're either going to be uh, brought into concentration camps. Everybody's a Hitler. Hitler lurks around every corner. And if not for Israel, uh, Hitler would be back tomorrow in every country everywhere. And of course, in Israel, uh, all the terrorists would just come and destroy all the Jews and kill all the Jews. If you ask them that the Jews and Muslims lived in peace for for, uh, over a thousand years, and why is it suddenly now, suddenly now, that the Muslims suddenly, these guys allegedly hate Jews? Clearly. And, and suddenly want to kill them? Clearly, it's Zionism that's the problem. It's not Islam, and it's not, Mus- it's not Muslims against Jews. That's the main thing we have to tell people. It's a political thing. It's Israel. It's not the Jews. The more Jews and the more non-Jews tell the Zionists, no, Israel is the state of the Israelis. Jews may, there may be many Jews who support Israel, and there are many Jews who are Democrats, but there are Jews who are Republicans too. And, and being a Jew and being a Zionist is not the same thing at all. Being a Jew and being Israeli is not the same thing. And the conflict is between the Israelis and the Palestinians, not between the Jews and the Palestinians. It has nothing to do with being Jewish. It's a political conflict that needs a political solution. So here he has an interesting thing, and I got a lot of calls on this. Israel, Jews and Muslims lived in peace for a thousand years. What did we need? And all it's done is create anti-Semitism. The Muslims loved us, or respected us, we were friends. I would say Rabbi Shapiro is entitled to his own opinion, especially in our program. I always say, bring your own opinion. But he's not entitled to his own facts. Right, I think you would agree with me on that. So we on our website, we posted a list of massacres of Jews by Muslims before 1948, before the Medina, you say they lived happily together and in harmony before Israel was established? How many times, by the way, have you heard that? 105 massacres, right, that we have listed, starting in 622, from the lifetime of Muhammad Yimachshimai, where he killed all the Jews of Mecca and Medina. Up to Bar Mitzvah, if after Bar Mitzvah you were killed, he would actually inspect if they had, if they had Sarais, Tartainim, and then otherwise he would kill them, right? You have 629, the first Alexandria massacre. Five different Alexandria massacres. This is the first. 634, the extermination of the 14 Arabian Jewish tribes in Yemen. He killed most of the Jews in Yemen. The rest he shmad up, including two wives. His two of his wives are Agashmad, the Yemenites, right? Interesting. In 822, which is, according to my calculation, uh, 1,200 years before the, the Zionism, right? The Islamic Empire, which was huge, passed a law that all Jews must wear yellow stars 1,100 years before the Nazis under the caliph, as they ruled all of Arabia, al-Mutasquili. 
I'm, I'm, but there's, there's 105. I'm not going to read all, high, all 105. 1106. Ali ibn Yusuf ibn Tashfin of Marrakesh decreed death penalty for any local Jew, including his Jewish physician and military general. He killed all the Jews of Marrakesh. In 1033, the first Fez pogrom in Morocco. 1148. Alamodina Morocco gives all the Jews of Morocco the choice of converting to Islam or else. 1066, the first Granada massacre of Muslim-occupied Spain, because it took over Spain. 1178, 1065, 1165, the chief rabbi of Maghreb is burnt alive in front of everybody, and the Rambam flees for Egypt. Well, I can understand why. Igeris Hashmad is tinted, his hatred for them is tinted because of this. 1220, I mean, 1276, the second Fez pogrom. 1385, the Khorasan massacre in Iran. 1438, the first Meleghetto massacre in North Africa. 1465, the third Fez pogrom. 1475, the Tzfas pogrom in Ottoman Palestine. 1517, the first Hebron pogrom. It just goes on and on and on. The Passover massacre in 1577. Uh, fast forward 500 years. 18, I have them all listed here. The Adin massacres in Ottoman. The first Izmir pogrom in Ottoman. Really? How many times Jews lived happily with Muslims? And if you don't say, okay, this is history, we don't believe historians. What does the Rambam write in his Igeris Teman? We said it. Achinu, this is the Russian Rambam in Igeris Teman. Yedua lachem shakadish baruchu hepilanu. Right, betach umazu, betach meheris avoyneseinu, the multitude of our sins. She umas yismal, shira osam chazkaleinu. Their evil grips us. Vehemishakmim, they scheme, lahara, velimoyseisanu, kamaisha gazerleinu yisparach, vevenu plulam, veloishetamay dal yisrael uma yoisera yeves vimena, vele uva shahera betachlis hara, lahaktaneisanu. It goes on and on, velinoyseisanu, kamaisha. He hated, nobody was betachlis hara, and he was right at his time. Unfortunately, subsequently to this, the Germans did worse things to us. I guess the Nazis did worse, but the Rambam was writing at his time. This was pre-Crusades. So, and even if you say, well, the Rambam was wrong, the, the, the Christians hated us even worse. But what he writes about them, how they hate us and how they were, were mayor at us. And what does Rabbeinu B'chai write? Right, this is in Parshas Nitzavim. He writes a, a long thing. Umasha hiskir oivecha al Yishmoel v'sainecha aleisav. In other words, it says by Birchas Tavram, it says v'yirish zarech eshar oivav. So the oiv of Yitzchak is Yishmoel. So you see, Yishmoel is called oiv. And when Yaakov is giving the bracha, he says v'yirish zarech. Yitzchak is giving the bracha v'yirish zarech eshar sainav. So you see, the sine of Yaakov is Esav. So he says, why is oiv called Yishmoel? Mipneisha oiv gadol menasaine. Ki if somebody's a sine, even if he does evil, yasle al derech rachmanis. Aval ha'oyev hu shabaliboy eva lo yasim lo rachmim al zokein yachbit ulaim oid. Kitsi has arichas how they, they hated us even worse than the, the Christians, which... Again, subsequently, thousand years later, you see that this turned out not to be correct, but the way he says how much they hated us. So I have a Rabbeinu Bechaya... And I have a Rambam, and I have a Ramban, by the way, who quotes, quotes about how the Le'ez Golos is going to be Golos Yishmael. And I have a list of 105 massacres. So again, I say, Rabbi Shapiro's entitled to his opinion, but please, Rabbi Shapiro, not your own facts. And you know what would happen if they had Eretz Yisrael? There would be massacres there, Rahman al-Atzlan. Just like, look at the countries that surround us. I mean, you know 10 of the 11 most violent countries in the world, according to... Uh, the UN Watch are, are Muslim countries, 10 out of the top 11. Count them. Syria, Iraq, Iran, Somalia, Lebanon, Yemen. I don't know. I don't remember the other four, but you can look them up. And Eretz Yisrael is right in the middle of this, cra- Lebanon is in the middle of this cradle of hatred. 
right? So you would say that we would be able to live there without, uh, uh, with, uh, in, in a Yiddish uh, thing, they, w- they would allow immigration there? They would allow millions after the Holocaust to come there? They would allow the Russians, a half a million Russians to, you could see like Bashar Assad says, sure, we'll let a million Jews in here. So think of the tremendous Yeshua it's been for all the immigrants, many of whom would have been killed or would have been Nisara bin Umay. So it would have happened to those 500,000 million Russians who came, 2 million if they hadn't come to Eretz Yisrael. What's the intermarriage outside of Eretz Yisrael compared to Eretz Yisrael? I just don't understand how anybody in their right mind could say we should not have an Eretz Yisrael today. Here's the next speech. Let me ask you this question, Rabbi Shapiro, is anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism synonymous? No, that's, uh, may I say, it's stupid. That's exactly what it is. It's absolute nonsense. It's very simple. First of all, Zionism is not Judaism. And even if Zionism was Judaism, if somebody doesn't like my religion, it doesn't make him an anti-Semite. There are plenty of religions that I don't like. There are probably certain religions that you don't like. If I don't like somebody's religion, that doesn't make me a hater. So he says, anti-Zionism, you could be anti-Zionist, but just because you're anti-Zionist doesn't make you an anti-Semite. Really now, why are all the kids in the colleges, right, terrified? Because the Zionists in Israel did something, they're taking it out on Jewish kids in America, in the colleges, right? So you see clearly, anti-Zionist is anti-Semites. Am I supposed to believe you, Rabbi Shapiro, or our own lying eyes see what's going on in America today? Are all Jews buying guns now because the guy of anti-Zion, they're worried about anti-Zion, and nobody here is running around with Zionist flags? Because if you're anti-Zionist, no, you're anti-Semite. And the facts show it. That in Golis, we don't fight against the Goyim. We're not allowed. By the way, your question about the Maccabim uh, is a very good question, but Number one, the less important answer is that that wasn't during Golos. We had a Beis HaMikdosh then. We were not in Golos. Remember Hanukkah, the Menorah? So we had a Beis HaMikdosh. But much more importantly, what's really uh, relevant is something that the Chafetz Chaim didn't say, which is what you're asking. HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes care of Klal Yisrael. There was, by the, on Hanukkah, when they made Gezeris, there was not one Jew in danger. Not a single Jew was in danger. If the Jews wanted, they could have avoided a war. And not a single Jew would have been hurt. You know what they could have done? Well, it said, what did the, the Greeks want? We should abandon the Torah. If the Jews would have abandoned the Torah, not one Jew would have been hurt. The Jews were not in danger. When they threatened the Jews and they said, if you, if you Mekayim the Torah will kill you, they didn't want to kill us. They wanted us to not be Mekayim the Torah. Right? If I tell you if you rob somebody's house, I'll put you in jail. It's not that I want to put you in jail. I want you not to rob anybody's house. All we could have said is, no problem, we won't keep the Torah. Then everybody would have been safe. The Jews were not being attacked. The Torah was being attacked. Here's the rule. When the Jews are attacked, like on Purim, where Ahasuerus did not say, Homan did not say, I want you not to do the Torah. He said, we want to kill you. Then they ran to Hashem. They were mispalled for three days. Afterwards, when the Gezerah was over, 
and with the permission of Achashverosh, we weren't fighting the Goyim, we were fighting with Achashverosh against, uh, with, with his full permission. We weren't fighting against governments, we were fighting with the full permission on behalf of Achashverosh. Hold on, he gave us permission. That's a different story. Hmm? But one thing at a time. But where the Torah is attacked, where the Torah is attacked, and not the Jews, then we fight for Hashem, not for us. When we're attacked, we follow this. When Hashem is attacked, then we fight for Hashem. Hashem protects the Jews, and the Jews protect the Torah. That's the rule. By the way, by Hanukkah, it says in the Al Hanisim. This is simply that Jews don't protect themselves. It's just megalapan b'tayri shaloi kalacha. Right? It's, it's, it's just, it's wrong, l'halacha. Let's talk, before we talk halacha, let's talk hashkafa, right? What does it say about Yaakov when he prepares to meet Esav? Doirein, tfila, and melchama. And what does the Ramban say? Ramban's bring the Gemara in Sanhedrin. He says, Ev, when, the, when they used to go to Edaim, they used to learn this parsha to see how should we deal with the with our, we're at, with our enemies. So this is the this parsha is the parsha of how do we deal with Esav? Esav Sinoyak, how do we deal with Esav? It's Dairain Tfilama Yaakov prepared for Mohammed. So Ashkaf is just totally wrong, right? But now let's talk halacha to Shulchanarach in Shin Tes in Hulchabis says Ir Shikifu Anachrim. Right? What do you do? Now we could assume they're not coming to argue on your Rajba. He says if they're arguing on Torah, then you go out. But if they're arguing on you physically, Shogunah says they're coming for money. And what is it that you go out even on Shabbos? So this concept that a Jew should not protect himself, that it's Megalapan and Betayrish And by the way, if you look in the in the, uh, the, the Bach, in, in Shin Chavtes, because it's brought in a few places in Shulchan Chavtes, in Shulchan Arachanarachayim, in, in Reish Memtes, it's also brought. And the Bach, on the spot, says, he says that Goyim Shanash, a year that, a Yidin that were captured, or a city that's surrounded, but what's his Lashon? Demochemes Mitzvahi Lahatzil Achayim. This is in Chutzlaretz. He said, as a din of a Mochemes Mitzvah. So the Shulchan Aruch says, you go out on Shabbos. In two places. The Bach says, it's a Mulchamah's mitzvah. The Torah says, Yaakov prepared for Mulchamah. And we have here somebody saying that, no, by war, we're not supposed to protect ourselves. Nobody made a special mishabayah for the Jews on respirators. Nobody made a special mishabayah for the Jews in Ukraine. And there's no reason to make a special mishabayah for anybody. This is an interesting thing. Do we make or don't we make a mishaberach? We s- spoke to the Gabi of, uh, we want to know what Ramayisha did, so we called Rebruven Feinstein's Gabi. He says that they absolutely make a mishaberach. And no, you're not making a mishaberach for Zionism, that you hold Herzl was right, or this or that. You're making a mishaberach that all the soldiers, many of whom learn in yeshivas, we spoke about the seven soldiers who just died from one yeshiva, it's going to be Nebuch. My son-in-law spoke to him today. He's, he, was, he was called up, and he said that he's a ro- big rov in Eretz Yisrael, and he, he was very involved in identifying the dead, etc. And he said, it's sadly going to be a, a doyer of Amonis and Yisaymim. Every day he goes to another Levaya, right? M- many of them are from, right? So do we make him a Shebeirach? But why is it different than Yidin in Ukraine? That's a valid question. Why do we make a Mishabarach for you? Or respirators? Why? I think that Eretz Yisrael has six, maybe seven million Eden. In a war, in a tiny country like that, it's an existential crisis. Everybody's at risk. 
right? There's sirens going off in Yerushalayim and Beersheba, all over, right? It's a tiny little country. It's 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 quarter the size of New Jersey. So when you have six or seven million Yidin besakana and all the great yeshivas, so you make a mishaberach. Are there Jewish people in Ukraine? Doubtless. You know, it's it's just it's. There's a small number of Yidin in Ukraine. There are some people on respirators. We do make a Mishaberach for Chaylim, but when something threatens almost the majority of Klal Yisrael, it's not a majority yet, otherwise there'd be all kinds of Shailas Lalacha, whether, uh, whether the, the Paris have a Din of the Reis, or whether Shemitahs are the Reis, so we don't say, but it's, it's 40% of, of Klal Yisrael. So is that a difference when something threatens 1% or 40% or a half a percent or a quarter and 40%? So this is just common sense. When something's existential, Right, If the Yishev in Eretz Yisrael was destroyed, what it would mean to the rest of Kal Yisrael, right? And 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 certainly most of the Frumayidin of the world. So for that, we make a Mishaberach. Should we make a Mishaberach for more things? It could be. Magen Avram says they used to make Mishaberachs for the uh, for the Chavra Kadisha, so, you know, the, for, for other things, for women who give birth, etc. There are the, but why Kal Yisrael sees an existential crisis as a reason to make a Mishaberach, where five, six, seven million Jews could be at risk? All the great yeshivas, most of from Kal Yisrael. I mean, it's just common sense why you see a, why you see a difference here. Yeah. So let's go to um, the last piece from Rabbi uh, Shapiro. And here he's going to talk about the Gimel Shroes. These we learned the Gemara, right? And the Gemara says that Rabbi Yehuda considered it usher to go to Eretz Yisrael from Bavel because of the Shalosh Shvuas. Then, but we know Rabbi Zeira disagreed with Rabbi Yehuda in this halacha. So the Gemara asks, what does Rabbi Zeira hold? Now the Gemara doesn't answer, well, Rabbi Zeira doesn't hold from the Shalosh Shvuas. Gemara could have answered that. That was very available to the Gemara. The Gemara could have said, for some reason, Rabbi Zeira holds they're not halacha We don't hold like them. But the Gemara doesn't say that. The Gemara says, no, Rabbi Zeira has a different shot in the Shavuos. Then the Gemara says, how does Reb Zeira explain the Shavuos if he doesn't hold like Rabbi Yehuda? So he has to say it's, it's talking only on the Rabbim, not on the Yochid. But the, for sure, it's clear from the Gemara that there's no chilek on the Shavuos. Alma, you see from there, she yef shaloyma You, It's clear that nobody disagrees, and it's not even possible to say that anybody disagrees with the shavuos, because if, they, if there would be, then the Gemara wouldn't be asking back and forth, what does Rabbi Yehuda hold, what does Rabbi Rebzeir hold, how does this one explain the shavuos, how does that one explain the shavuos? Ela kule alma moidi, everybody agrees. Behu tehilchas harabsen in hu, that there are klar halochas, boinish chamu marach monolitzlan. The Gemara says that Rabbi Yehuda learns out from a posuk. He learns out from a posuk that you're not allowed to go from Bavel to Eretz Yisrael. What is that if not halacha? Then the Gemara says, what about Rabbi Zeira? Besides that, it asked Rabbi Yehuda to go. What about Rabbi Zeira, right? Well, Rabbi Zeira holds that a yochid is allowed to go, but the whole thing, klar, that these are halachas, but the Satma Rebbe here is addressing a different thing. He's addressing... The Shaila as to whether anybody disagrees with them. That the halach is nothing to discuss. Under the circumstances that, that unfolded, 
that the Arabs objected. It was not a peaceful ascent. There was a war of independence where 6,000 Jews were killed. What Adam Godel said that that's permitted. I wrote in my book, B'Shem Rav Henkin, that the Taina that people who Matad's creating the Medina had was, well, the Goyim, the Goyim violated their Shvua. The third Shvua was that the Goyim should not uh, oppress the Jews. Yosemi die. So if they violated theirs, we're allowed to violate ours. But he says that Reuben, the Gedele Yisrael, didn't hold like that. We had the Chuvas Rebbeizer Gordon way before the Satmar Rebbe wrote Vayel Moshe, way before the Satmar Rebbe wrote Vayel Moshe. He said that um, Mizrachist. He said, "What do you mean? The whole thing, the Shalashvuas, Asa, the whole thing." The Rebbe Rashab of Lubavitch in the Orla Yisharim. He said, "What do you mean? There's a Shalashvuas. It asses the whole thing." Uh, who in the world? Who in the world mounted such a thing? You know, people don't know these inyanim, and they, they hear somebody get up. I, I guess the Arabs would know how to argue on them. They don't know the halacha. But let's go through it. The Gimel Shuis is brought in the little letters in the Marsha. In other words, it's brought in the Agadah Samarsha, which means that the Marsha brings it as an Agadah Gemara, and we don't paskin from Agadah. And the whole Gimel Shuis is in the whole back of the Sechta, where it's all stories about this. It's not brought in the first... Many prakim in Ksubis, right? Where it's halacha. And Ksubis has so much halacha. It's brought the agadata portion of the mesechta, right? Now, additionally, if something is a halacha, how do we know if we paskin like it? Well, we go after three. You have the rush, the rif, and the rambam. And the basic usually goes with two out of those three. The rush doesn't bring it lalacha. Started. The rif doesn't bring it lalacha. And the rambam doesn't bring it lalacha. The Mordechai doesn't bring it lalacha. Again, the great Mordechai is sort of the kids of Piske Tysus in a way. The great German Tysifist uh, 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 doesn't bring it. The Torah doesn't bring it. The Beis Yosef in the Torah doesn't bring it. The Shulchan Aruch doesn't bring it. And the Ramah doesn't bring it. The Beis Yosef in the Ramah. So nobody brings it. To me, that's very Agadata-like. Now, as far as the Gimel Shuas, the question is, he's asking, well, this is asked, so, so then what, like, why aren't we Makhbar on them? And, and there are so many answers given. I'll give you a few. One is this three answers. Loyal Bechayma, we shouldn't, we shouldn't d- disrupt the Gullahs prematurely, right? And the third one is that the Goyim, that they'll treat us well. So many of the Akharinim who talk about it say, look, they didn't keep their part of the deal. They treat us terribly. I spoke about the 120 massacres in Muslim countries. There were equal number, greater number in, in non-Muslim countries, right? So they certainly didn't, didn't keep, that's one possibility. Who was certainly one of the greatest Goyim in the last you know, 150 years was our Sameach. In the, in the litter, he was considered like Bismane the Goyen. If Chaim Brisker wanted to get a Haskama and Chidush Rabbein Chaim Alevi on, on him, he was brilliant, brilliant, and his stories are fabulous too. So many great stories with our Sameach, who sadly died ultimately without children, and all we have from him are his Sfarim. After he died, the Ragacheva, who was the Rav in town, also the Rav Mitama Medina, but for Chidusha, got together a minion to sit Shiva for the, uh, in the house of the Arsameach. Very sadly. But in a letter, the f- famous letters, I don't know why he says whatever, that they don't know of anybody who objects. Tar Sameach already writes this exact Lushan. Kivan Shesar Pachad Hashvois. 
the worry, the fear of the shores is gone. Why? Because Berishayoyin hamelachim come amidst the Yisrael. It says the, the issa was shalayalu b'chayma. We should not grab Eretz Yisrael out of the rested away from the Ottoman Empire, whatever it is. He says now you're going. It was after the Balfour Declaration, etc. You're going with the Rishus. The, the British owned it. The British said, you can have it. So he said, you go, and in 1948, it was getting with permission. It was at the UN. So both initially and after 1948, that's not Layalu when the UN says you could do it, miraculously. Right? That's what the great Ur Sameach certainly was as great as a Pisic as anybody as Rabbi Shapiro brings says this. So, so, so there are many answers, but one of the answers is the Yisra was to do it like Yalu B'chaima. We did it. We did it with permission. So here's a Ha'ara, another Ara that we would have on the, the great Divrei Yael, that even if he holds that the Gimel Shuas are Asa, but it's the Makam Pikuach Nefesh, I mean, Eretz Yisrael, this is the World War II time where the Jews had nowhere really to go after the war. And the Jews of Russia and Jews from so many countries that fled to Eretz Yisrael from all the Arabic lands. So Lechaira, even if the Gimel Shuas Asa, it's certainly not Pikuach Nefesh. And it was, I would make the argument that Eretz Yisrael, to have a land for Yidin, is Pikuach Nefesh. So he asked this question, and he has a diak in a maral that it's even pikuach nefesh, that the gimel shua sadaycha pikuach nefesh. Now the morale is in one of two girsois in a medrash. So I would just say like this. Is it really possible to say that Jews should die, that it's because a diak in a morale to say that the gimel shuas, or the gimel shuas, all the, most of the paiskim held were, were agadata. Those that didn't held a winitcha. So you, you have one sad, he wants to say no. Okay, you have to respect the He held that it was Asa, that the Gimel Shu was Anaragadata, and he argues on these pious Gimel Asa. And now you can say a diak in a morale to make it Yerig Valyavar? I mean, the Ral's going on, 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 on an Agadata for sure. It's a Medrish. It's not a Gemara. It's a Medrish. So from a diak in a morale, how to learn shot in a Medrish, and it's two Medrashim that the morale himself says associate each other, right? On that, you're going to make Yerig Valyavar? I mean, could you kill Yidin because of a diak in a morale? which it's not clear that that's the pshat of the morale, and the morale says there's another medrash that argues on him. For that, you're going to say, million Yidin should die because of this? It's doichepi yarig val yaver? I mean, it's, it's just in halacha, would you really paskin that way? That would be the ara, the last final ara I would ask on the Divri the, the Yael. Let's go to our next guest. Joining us from Eretz Yisrael is Rabbi Yehuda Geber. He's the host of the Jewish History Soundbites podcast, Jewish Historian. Welcome, Rabbi Yehuda. Thank you. Great to be here. So, question. The G'daylem who were opposed to the, the state of Israel before the uh, World War II, which I, I'm assuming is most of the Agudah, what were the reasons for their opposition? First of all, they were opposed to the Zionist movement. There was no state of Israel. Um, I assume that's what you meant. They, the, it was most, most of the Agudah, or basically the whole Agudah Israel, and many rabbis outside of Agudah were opposed. There were varying degrees of opposition, and there were also different reasons for the opposition. There were some who was only mildly opposed within the Agudah Israel. people like the Chartva Rebbe, the Biyana Rebbe, Sadiger Rebbe, or Meir Shapiro. The mainstream of the Agudah Israel, Rav Chaim Eisergudzinski, the Geyer Rebbe, and most of the big Gedalim of that time were kind of like in the in the middle, um, you know, more than mild opposition, but not extreme opposition. Then there were the, there were those who were 
very vocally opposed, like Rebbe Hanan Wasserman, or 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 the ones who were who were so extreme they were outside of Agudas Yisrael, like in Galicia, the Baba Rebbe and the Belzer Rebbe was even more, and Chabad at that time, the Rashav, the Friedrich Rebbe, uh, the Munkatcher, the Mechzalazar, the Satmarav, Rechaim Zonenfeld in Yerushalayim, they were like the very extreme uh, anti. The, the reasons I would break down into two reasons, whatever the level of opposition was, was either there was ideological or we'll call it theological or metaphysical or perhaps even messianic. Um, that type of opposition was... Um, the that it's going you can't have the Zionist movement because it's going against the Shalish voice they're not allowed they're trika sakates you're not allowed to have a Jewish state or a mass immigration towards Israel or or rebelling against the nations of the world before the Geula and it's going to prevent the Geula from coming and therefore the Minchazalazar calls it like the Sitra Achra and 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 the way they viewed it was that this is something entirely new the one who originally starts with that type of opposition is the Rashab of Chabad the fifth Rebbe of Chabad. Although it was hinted at originally earlier by Rosh Hashanah Hirsch, but that was before the Zionist movement even existed. Um, and then it's taken up by people like the Nechazelazar, and then most famously by the Satmarov. That's one type of opposition. The second type of opposition, which the overwhelming majority of those who were opposed, including anyone affiliated with Agudah Yisrael, no one in Agudah had this first type of opposition that I mentioned, was more of a pragmatic uh, opposition, more about identity, Jewish identity. First of all, um, they were opposed to the idea of Jewish nationalism nationalism forming uh, the basis of Jewish identity, because Jewish identity is only formed around the Torah. So you can't take a new idea of nationalism and, and having a nation state, and that being the basis of Jewish identity, because Jewish identity is supposed to be the Torah, so the very idea of nationalism was something they're opposed to. And even more so, the fact that the Zionist movement was so secular-oriented and, uh, and, and was led by secular with a secularist agenda, so they saw it as another manifestation of the challenges of modernity, that that this is secularization, this is going to cause more hills, Shabbos, and all these leaders are secular, and it's going to be treif, and it's going to be all the problems of having secular Jews run things, um, and even of a bigger threat is that here's secular Jews, they're not promoting socialism or communism or assimilation, but they're using our uh, holy land, they're using our Eretz Yisrael, Eretz HaKadosh, that is so dear to us, and they're, you know, secularizing it, and, and that idea was like, that was seen more in the general sense of the challenges of modernity and secularization is that something we have to deal with as a secular challenge. Those are the two basic types of opposition. Now, why were the agudists, quote-unquote, like you say, uh, why were they not opposed to it because of what the ultra-right wing was, was because of the Gemal Shorts? The Gemal Shorts was a big chiddish to, that that would be an opposition. Um, and it was... When when the Rashaba brought it up, and then later it was taken up, like I said, that Munkach and, and even more so the Samarov, it was it was it was quite like you know people were kind of surprised by it because that Gemara in Ksubis was never Paskin Laalacha in the Rambam or in Shulchan Aruch or anywhere else. It was seen as an Agata to Gemara, which is not you know, usually used as like a central point of halacha or a central point of, of, of belief, of Jewish belief or, or Yiddishkeit. And, uh, and uh, so it was, it, was, it was like surprising that it was used as like this major force of opposition when it was like a, a, an obscure Agatha Gemara that had never, never been utilized in a halachic framework in thousands of years of Jewish history. That's number one. Number two is that even if one, one wanted to take this Agatha 
the Gemara and kind of use it literally, which had never been done before, it was it was questionable whether it was even possible because you know the third shavuah of those shavuos was that the non-Jewish non-Jews wouldn't subjugate us and torture us too much. And over two thousand years of history, it seemed that they had. So uh, if they broke theirs, then you know maybe we can break ours. In addition to that, it, it wouldn't be considered a merida Island, which is another one of the three shavuos because of the Balfour Declaration, and then later after the war, you know, we're jumping ahead, 1947, the UN vote. So the, it seemed like these three shavuos weren't very relevant, and it seemed just to fit in better with the regular problems of modernity and and, and secular Jews and and. You're saying that Reb Chaim was a Pisic. He wasn't looking at it from a Kabbalistic or some, uh, you know, uh, you know, Dari type of issue. And he said, halachically, you cannot pass in from the Sagara to Gemara. It's not problematic from a halachic point of view. That's the bottom line, right? He was opposed to. Yeah, it, I mean, uh, I don't know if he actually wrote a tshuva. I'm not aware of that. But th- that's pretty much what it seems like the mainstream view was. Yes. So what happens after the war? You know, six million Jews are dead. There was no place for the Jews to run. They were, their ships were turned away from foreign shores and sent back to the, you know, to the ovens of Birkenau and Bergen-Belsen. And Eimabonim Smecha writes about how he changed his mind. What happens post-World War II and suddenly all the parties of Agudah are now have joined the Israeli government? Like, explain that, that turnaround. So, so after World War II, the, the, the result, um, this, Two, you just described two things that happened. First of all, the Holocaust, the six million that were killed, and also the reality of the establishment of the state of Israel. Taken together, that's a incredibly radical change in the Jewish world, and especially as far as you know, any opposition to Zionism. Um, first of all, you have the idea that, that like everything that was lost, and now we need to rebuild, and if there's a Jewish state in Eretz Yisrael, and it gives us an opportunity to rebuild, then we got to work within that framework, because look at this tremendous destruction. That was one general attitude. The other general attitude is, is that it's not the Zionist movement anymore. It, you can oppose the Zionist movement as much as you want because it's all in the realm of ideology. It's all my belief system and your belief system. But when, when it's a sovereign state of Israel, it's not the Zionist movement. It's, and there's nothing to oppose. It's a reality. It's there. So, you know, what are you going to oppose? I mean, you, you can not like it, and many people in many countries around the world don't like their government. That's fine. Many Frenchmen don't like the French government. Many Americans don't like the American government. There are many Israelis who are upset at the Israeli government for all kinds of different reasons, and it could be for the reasons that, that the religious Jews had, that, that, the secu- that the Israeli government is very secular. That has nothing to do with opposing Zionism per se. It has to do with working within the reality of a real state that exists after 1948, especially in light of the Holocaust. So you had some people um, um, who um, f- focused more on this Holocaust type of, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, reality, uh, living in the shadow of the Holocaust. Like you mentioned, even before the State of Israel, uh, the Holocaust itself, uh, he changed his views even before the state was established, just because of what he saw in the Holocaust itself. By the way, I'd mention also Rebarachal Rabinovich of Munkach, right? He's the son-in-law, the only son-in-law of the Minchas Elazar, who was the biggest Kanai in the world, and he, as a result of the Holocaust and what he had seen, he goes all the way to the other side, a radical change. He survived the Holocaust, and he becomes, 
you know, basically a Zionist. Uh, so that's another interesting, uh, an interesting uh, change. The Belzer Rebbe, Barla Belzer, who also, his father, the Rebbe of Yisachar Daiv, was one of the biggest Kanayim in Europe. When the Belzer Rebbe survives the war, loses most of his family and all of his Hasidim, and somehow makes it to Teretz Yisrael in 1944, after, you know, almost by the end of the war, he um, he says something to the effect, and of course there's a huge dispute till, till today exactly what were the words that he used, but something to, along the lines of, well, it turns out that what we were saying about Eretz Yisrael isn't exactly the case, because, you know, I can still keep Shabbos, and I can still wear my strimal, and they're not killing me for doing that, so even though they're secular, and they're maybe anti-religious, but they're allowing religion to flourish and survive, and it's possible to live as a religious Jew in Eretz Yisrael, so I guess we were a bit mistaken. Um, and again, all this is before the State of Israel is established. You know, after the State of Israel is established, we have the combination of the two things of the Holocaust and the State of Israel, so it's even more radical, and you have even people like the Kleisenberger Rebbe, who again, he lives in the shadow of the Holocaust, he had lost his wife and ten children, and went through the camps and lost everything he had, and he definitely was a Kanoi, he was a son-in-law of the Sigatarov, and he was a nephew of the Satmarov, and he you know, he was a big Hungarian kanoi and an of the with all that. And he does not become a Zionist. He never was a Zionist, the Kleisenberger Rabbi, but he definitely changed. And someone asked him, how did he change? And he said something very wise. He said, Ben-Gurion never asked me, should I establish a state of Israel? And I'm asking your opinion, Kleisenberger Rabbi. He never asked me that. Uh, he, he, he established it, and it's there. Now it's there, and we use it. We work within it. And very similar in Lubavitch, by the way, also. Um, the Rashab, like I said was a very, very big opponent of the Zionist movement, as was the Friedrich Rebbe. But uh, the, the, the last Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Mendel, uh, the last Lubavitcher Rebbe, he uh, seemed to be much more working with the, you know, he met with all the prime ministers, and he, he's much more, you know, welcoming and much more, you know, there's a lot to say about, about what, his, what his views on it were. But basically what it was is that, is that he felt it's there. You can either just yell and scream, or you can work within it. You can, you can do Kirov, you can, you can spread light, you can spread we can promote unity instead of opposition. The Polish Rebbe's were very much like that. The Ger, which is a good Yisrael, of course, the, the, and Tzachachov also, they said we can either scream and yell, like, and they were trying to make a swipe at the Hungarian Rebbe's when they said that, um, or you could build. He said, look, they're building Kibbutzim, they're building the Sochnut, the Jewish agency, they're building, 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 and we shouldn't just stand on the side and yell and scream and we should say, we'll build, we'll build with, we'll build yeshivas, we'll build chasidis, we're going to vote in the elections, we'll have our representatives in the government, we'll be part of the budget, and we'll be part of it, and we'll get what we need, and this way we'll be able to have Yiddishkeit flourish, and, and and, 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 and work within this reality, work within this framework, and rebuild what was lost in the Holocaust. Do you see anywhere a sense of regret, like we were wrong, and if we had gone Zionist earlier, maybe we could have saved more people by sending more people to Israel before the war? Uh, I wish we did. It's, 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 uh, you, you see it in actions and not so much in words. In other words, you see it in, in the way... They modified their positions um, afterwards and worked within a new reality. But to the best of my knowledge, you don't, besides for Amabana uh, Smecha, which is a famous example, you don't have anyone who got up and acknowledged publicly, you know, that was a mistake. Um, um, and I'm, I'm, asking, I'm asking from the Amabana Smecha. He says it was a mistake. We should have backed them. It would have saved a lot of lives, et cetera. Is he the only one who right. takes that position? He's the only one who takes that position by articulating it that clearly. I think that others took that position as witnessed by their actions, but not by a public apology or acknowledgement. 
Tell me if I'm encapsulating this right. You're saying before the war, there was an opposition, many opposition, but the good and the mainstream opposition was they are poison to cholesterol that will do great damage, right? It's post-World War mm-hmm. II, they're here. Now, look, A, the poison isn't as great as we think. Like, you know, like you say, the bells are upset. Nobody's pulling the strimal off my head. So we can actually right. live here. And B, now that it's a new reality, let's make the best of it. Is that sort of it? Exactly. Sort of what you tell, what you, it is. Do you think that the Zionism that they were so afraid of, which is 1948, or 1938 and 1928, where you know, most of the leaders of Zionism were Shano Pirishniks, or at least half of them were, right? And it was like, leave you this guy, become Zionist. Is that the Zionism of 100 years later? Like, is... Is today's Zionism, you know, trying to convince people to leave yeshivas? Is anybody leaving yeshiva because they became Zionist? Just as today's, you know, Republican Party is radically different than 100 years ago, and Democratic Party is radically different than it was 30 years ago, and Germany is different, and Spain is different than it was during... I mean, is it is it to the same Zionism, or is it a totally... It's the same name, but totally different issues, totally different uh, Zionism. It's completely different. It has no relation whatsoever. And, and, I'll, exp- and I'll explain why in a few ways. Um, number one, the most important thing is, is that in no- 1948, the state of Israel is established. So essentially, um, for those who live within the borders of the state of Israel after 1948, Zionism no longer exists. Um, Zionism exists in one of two dimensions, either pre-1948 or post-1948 outside of Israel, like in the United States or something. In, once, once, once the two goals of Zionism were to create a Jewish state in their ancestral homeland, because the Jews have a right to self-determination, that's the idea of nationalism, and that there should be kibbutz goliaths, that, that Jews should actually come and live there. Now, once those two things are accomplished, so Zionism accomplished its goals, and it can, you know, close the lights on the Zionist movement, because now it's Israel. Uh, Ben-Gurion himself said, as soon as the state of Israel is established, I stopped being a Zionist, and I'm now an Israeli. And I think that all Israelis um, are the same way, and, and by three generations later, 75 years later, they all feel the same way, whether they're Haredi or Fry or in the middle. It's not, it's not a matter of Zionist or not Zionist. It, it's obsolete. It doesn't exist. It's, you're Israeli, and there's all types of Israelis. There's religious, there's secular, there's rightist, there's leftist, there's rich and poor, and, and they have their differences and have their opinions, and, and they're very happy to share their opinions, and, they're, and that's working out the differences between citizens in a common country. You may even dislike the country altogether, but you're still part of it, and even if you don't want to be part of it, it's there. The sovereign state is so all-powerful that it's just a reality that's created. So as any, any opposition to Zionism that's pre-state of Israel has to be really reassessed once the state is established, because now it's not about Zionism, it's about Israel, Israeli. Um, and that's, that's point number one, and that's the most important point. The second point is, is, like what you said, that over time things change, is that it's just that it's three generations later, the types of people that are involved are, are different on both sides of the equation, um, the goals are different, and, uh, and, 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 and you don't have this, it's, it's very, very wrong to extrapolate um, without, without, um, without reason, uh, you know, things that were said so long ago uh, without taking into the, the context and the parameters of what's going on in today and what, what things have changed. Like If you had to just describe it, Zionism of 1948, 38, 48 was X, today it's Y. If you had to put them each in two or three sentences, what would you say? The 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 Zionism of that time had an agenda to 
substitute Jewish identity from religion to nationalism, and they were very strongly inclined to use any means at their disposal to do so. So they had much more of an opposition to um, public religious practice or communal religious practice. They wanted religion to be a private matter. Um, and nationalism and Jewish nationalism is the new Jewish identity, and that's it. And that's why they're so about education and culture and the new Hebrew culture and the new, the new Israeli culture. Whereas today, it's about, um, it's about, it, they don't, those agendas aren't really around. It's more about having a flourishing economy and things that make sense. And we have our differences about religion and, sec, you know, religion, religious versus secular. And you see that there's all types of things in the Knesset that come up and, and demonstrations, and it still exists today. Of course, no one's denying that those exist. But that's disagreements between citizens of a country the same way, like you said before, about Democrats and Republicans. It's, 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 and, it's, and it's decided through the legislative process. There's a Knesset, there's votes, there's political parties, and that's, you know, simply a function of a, of a regular democratic society of how things work out. So you, do, you simply don't have it, the Zionism of, of that time. I would, I would be very surprised if any member of the Knesset or any member of Israeli society even would identify themselves as Zionists today in the, in the way that it was defined in 1948. So is this statement true then? The original Zionism had a fierce dislike of religion, which explains stories like the horrible stories of the Yalde Tehran, where they came and they took the yarmulkes and this, 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 whereas today it's about, we want to be the richest economy in the Middle East, the most successful country that has the most opportunities for citizens, has the most free rights. Um, and when the Ethiopian Jews came more recently, nobody was interested in taking the yarmulkes or their pays away from them. It's just nobody even thought that way. It's how do we get them into computer school as quickly as possible to say they can be successful? That's sort of like a fear. Kind that's, of. A, that's a very, very good assessment. That's exactly, yeah, that's perfect. So let me ask you the following question. This is not so much a historical a historian's question, but a theological question. I think most of us would agree, maybe the Satmara or the, uh, the Torikarata don't agree, that the establishment of, of, of Eretz Yisrael, for Kal Yisrael, is the best thing that's happened to Kal Yisrael in the 2,000 years since, uh, since the Chorban Abayas. And uh, just even simple things like, you know, look at the intermarriage in Israel, which is like close to zero, whereas in the United States it's 70%. Imagine if there was no Israel, they'd all be living in America. Out of the 7 million Jews in Israel, we'd probably have 2 million less, right? And the fact yeah. that Jews do have some place to run, as recently as Ukraine, where did they run? They ran to Israel. The borders are always open. So wherever, wherever there's a tsar, the French Jews, they come to Israel. You have to run away from fans. But why did such a wonderful thing, not saying, by the way, as I could see, you know, people looking at me, that Israel doesn't have what to improve. It absolutely has what to improve. And in the Shemir's Torah and Mitzvahs and certain, you know, Chel Shabbos, etc. Actually, has it, but overall, it's a tremendous. There's more Torah being learned in, in our Israel today than any time since the days of Cheskia, right? Right. It says even every child knew Taharis. So the question is, why did such an amazing thing in Ruchnius, the Kali Yisrael, come through the hands of people like Herzl, who was, I mean, he was Machal Shabbos, but the you know, he had a dinner at the but not he actually was a Tenechshenishba. But Ben Gurion, Gold in the Ear, Eliezer Ben Shmuel, Achad Amlik, why did this amazing thing happen through people who halachically certainly um, have the demon of, you know, you know, my reason for Malin? Explain that. So I, I, 
I'm not. I'm not 100 sure. I, I have a few ideas. I, I definitely am not saying anything for certainty. Um, first of all, it, it happened. It happened before. Um, the you know, Kairish wasn't even Jewish, right? So one who brought back the Jews after the Gullus Bavel was actually not even Jewish. So you know, it's, it, it's possible. Um, we just are finishing up now celebrating Hanukkah, and uh, Hanukkah, the Hashmenoim weren't uh, Grace Sadikim, right? They they afterwards they were you know they they. They, the Chachamim weren't so happy with them. The Malchus based Chachamim, but they were the ones who brought the Geula in the middle but of the second base. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Of course, I'm just, I'm just saying that it doesn't always happen that the Geula happens through the biggest Sadikim. It happens also through you know either regular people or, like I said, even non non Jewish. But but that, that's one that's one one thought I have. Um, another thought is is that is that um, if, if you look at it in a you know, just a, not a, not in a theological way, in a purely historical way, it almost couldn't have happened any other way. Uh, the, the, it had to happen because the the conservatism of religious and rabbinic society was such that they would never have initiated such a movement. It, it, it couldn't have happened that way. It had to happen in a way people who were willing to 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 say enough, we're going to change things, and people like that are going to be the ones who. Are, are not necessarily religious or feel bound by religion. They're willing to explore new ideas like nationalism. Now, why Hashem would have allowed that to happen is anyone's best guess. I don't you know, profess to know Hashem's ways, but it, it, it wouldn't have made sense for the rabbinical establishment to have gotten up one day and said, you know, we should all go back to Israel and create a state. It, it, it would... That would be, you know, that wouldn't have made any sense. It's Dafka, the ones who left or are leaving Yiddishkeit, who don't feel bound by that, who are looking for new solutions for the challenges of the Jewish people in modern times, who said, you know, instead of assimilation, instead of um, socialism, let's let's go back to our, let's go back to our ancestral homeland. Let's 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 do this and and you know create a uh, nation state like everyone else. And perhaps, you know, um, you mentioned that they. The, the, the Jewish uh, Israel is, is a safe place for Jews running away. That was their plan. That was the initial plan. That's what they wanted. They did not have an initial plan to become the biggest supporters of Tyra, like you mentioned, since the time of Chizkiah. But that happened despite the, their plan. So Hashem was able to get that in, you know, even though they didn't want this. But he arranged that it should work out, that the state of Israel should become the biggest supporter of Tyra since the time of uh, Beis HaMikdash. Yehuda, thank you very much for your, for your time. Thank you. Joining us from Jerusalem is Dr. Einat Wilf. She's a former member of the Knesset, but the reason we have her here is she's an expert on Zionism. She wrote a book, We Should All Be Zionists. She's written around seven or eight books, uh, Back to Basics, The War of Return, etc. Welcome, Dr. Wilf. Thank you. So can you tell us the um, historical factors that led to the emergence of Zionism in the 19th century? Certainly. Uh, Zionism essentially has three parents, without which it cannot be understood. So the first one is, of course, the longstanding connection between the people of Israel and the land of Israel, between the Jewish people and Judea. That is the fundamental basis for the claim of Zionism for self-determination. So the ancient connection between the people of Israel and the land of Israel, the continuous connection, the fact that it's a connection that's maintained over centuries of exile is one parent. The second parent is uh, the disappointment from emancipation. 
Zionism cannot be understood without understanding the promise and excitement that emancipation had for the Jews of Europe, the idea that the Jews can leave the ghettos and they can become German or French and equal citizens in the newly established secular republics of Europe. And it is the disappointment from this promise of the sense of many early Zionists that like Herzl and Pinsker and others, that despite the noble ideals of emancipation, of equality for the Jews, that the nations of Europe will not be able to actually live up to those ideals. That is the second parent of Zionism. And the third parent, of course, is the rise of the idea of the nation state, uh, the transition throughout the 19th and 20th century, and we're even seeing a bit of it in the 21st, is the political transition from multi-ethnic empires into nation states. And that's what created, in many ways, the two world wars, numerous regional wars and civil wars. So Zionism is part of a global transition from empires to nation states. And in the name of the principle of self-determination, that's the principle that creates the transition, the idea that people should rule themselves, Slovaks and Czechs, Ukrainians and Poles. And it was clearly understood in the 19th century, in the early 20th centuries, that the Jews constitute a people in a nation, no less than the Slovaks and the Poles and the Ukrainians, and that by virtue of them being a people in a nation, they have the right to self-determination. And where should that right be exercised? In the only land and territory to which they were ever connected. So those are the three parents of Zionism. You cannot understand Zionism without all three, and any effort to just explain it with one of the parents falls short. Okay. Who are some of the key figures, the pivotal figures in the early Zionist movements and what did they contribute? So uh, there are many thinkers, uh, uh, but uh, the two most important ones are clearly uh, Pinsker, who uh, thinks of it in the more the Russian context, and that's where most Jews live in the Pale of Settlement, and of course, Theodore Herzl. Uh, Theodore Herzl in many ways gets short shrift by people thinking that he was only a visionary, that he merely thought of the idea. Uh, Herzl is remarkably not just a visionary, but an institution builder. So in the seven years where he commits himself to Zionist activities, he actually builds the institutions of the emerging state of Israel. He creates what is basically the parliament of the Jewish people with the first Zionist Congress. He creates the first banks, the fundraising mechanisms. He even creates the diplomatic <coughs> infrastructure. The Balfour Declaration cannot be understood without Herzl's efforts to get diplomatic recognition for the idea of a Jewish state. He still operates in the imperial era. So for him, it's uh, understood that the Jews cannot build anything without uh, imperial kind of sanctions. So a lot of his emphasis is to get one of the empires to agree to the Jews beginning the process of establishing their own state. So it's quite remarkable to look at what he did in a few short years. It's not just the vision. It's not just the book writing. It's actually the building of the institutions of the pre-state. Would you, and I don't know if this is your area of expertise, could you, there was, the, the religious community in Europe was divided about Zionism. There were those who were very pro-Zionist, the Chobavetzian movement, who were very, that, yeah. were very opposed. Could you explain what the struggle between them was? Certainly. 
Because Zionism is a modern movement, and that's why I emphasize the disappointment from emancipation, the idea of the nation state. Those are modern ideas. They emerge from the Enlightenment ideals. And as a result, Zionism is born uh, mostly as a very secular movement, Uh, secular in the sense that it also channels the secular idea that people take charge of their own history. Uh, That's a very modern idea. It's a secular idea. You don't just sit passively and wait for God to send his Messiah. In many ways, Zionism basically said, uh, we're going to be our own messiahs. It's a movement of self-redemption, of saying, we're done waiting. So it's a movement that's very modern. and And obviously, this is an idea that grates on a lot of religious sensibilities. So you have a range of religious opposition from the most extreme, what becomes ultimately the kind of the Satmar, kind that has an entire theological worldview against Zionism. You have people who are just opposed on the fact that it's just secular. Uh, And then, like you said, you have um, two kinds of religious support for Zionism, one which I would call more sentimental, which is the early Chovevetzion and uh, religious Zionism, that essentially uh, they still want to keep the practices of Jewish life, but they are Zionists. And you have the religious Zionism that really develops uh, in the late 60s and 70s with uh, the more Cook worldview that views secular Zionism as merely a stage in the salvation. Uh, Sometimes, uh, again, half-jokingly, I said that kind of religious Zionism basically says that regardless of what secular Zionists said about what they're doing, unbeknownst to them, they were doing God's work. So it's a worldview that says that God works in mysterious ways. And if God chose to bring salvation through the godless communists of early Zionism, then then that God that is God's way of bringing about salvation. But that's a much later development. In the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, there is a very, what I call, benign, uh, almost folklorist form of religious Zionism. It's part of the general Zionist movement with people who want to maintain religious practices. Would you say Zionism as a movement is like alive today? Like um, most of my friends who like are in Israel, be they secular, they just see Israel. Hey, this is where we live. This is our country. I mean, they they live there. It's like an American doesn't see themselves as a you know a Jeffersonian, or they just this is where I live and I'm going to protect it, etc. Like, how has Zionism adapted to the 21st century? So first of all, in many ways, uh, that is the success. I mean, the success of every revolution is in the fact that it becomes obvious, uh, that people don't even see it anymore to the point that they don't even think it's necessary. I mean, Zionism, if you look at the early Zionist writings, uh And the way that they wanted to transform the Jewish condition from a minority that uh, is is persecuted and always feels that it needs to apologize and uh, basically is distorted by the need to ingratiate itself with uh, larger powers. And if you see how they imagine the Jewish condition as people who will work the land and who will fight for themselves, the idea of Jews as warriors, as fighters in the 19th and early 20th century 
sounded insane. So, and a lot of things that we take for granted today, uh, military power, agriculture, were considered just crazy ideas. Uh, the reason that I still insist on it is that like any movement that seeks to transform a historical condition, certainly a liberation movement, it doesn't just end when the people achieve a certain milestone. Liberation movements also have the vision of liberating society at large. The liberation of Jews was never just about establishing the state. It was also about liberating society at large from its vision and image of what is the proper place of Jews. And in that sense, Zionism remains a project that has not been completed. We see it in the continued obsession in the West with Jewish power, and uh, certainly in the region where Israel exists, uh, the revolution has not been completed. The Arab world is still, by and large, obsessed with anti-Zionism, obsessed with the fact that the existence of a Jewish state is somehow a humiliation that they cannot live with. And in that sense, Zionism still has the much larger project of liberating societies at large, in terms of how they view Jews and liberating them from the need to scapegoat Jews for their own failures. And in that sense, we're very far from having achieved the goal. Can you explain pre-war, the Agudah was very anti-Zionism. Post-war, right, they, they joined the government, you know, they're, they're, they, that opposition seems to have somewhat dissipated or disappeared. Is there any philosophy? You're saying post World War II, you mean? Y yes, post World War II. Yeah. Is, was there any a philosophy to it? Was it did they realize, hey, we really do need a country? You know, there were both the ships, the Antolina was turned back for them to go back to the gas chamber, et cetera. It was it or was it just practical? Like we're here and we have to make peace with it. We lost and let's move on. How do you see that philosophical change? So it did some of it was practical, but there is also a somewhat philosophical and theological change that just had to do with the verdict of history. Because if you look at the debates on Zionism pre-World War II, it's mostly intra-Jewish debates where Jews are seriously and honestly debating what is the best way to be a Jew given the challenges of modernity. The challenges of modernity, emancipation, remain some of the toughest challenges for Jewish life, precisely because they they bring down the walls, they bring down the boundaries that existed for centuries and millennia between the Christian and the Muslim world and the Jewish world. It's the coming down of these walls that created the challenge to Jewish life. Uh, I always explain to people that the Haredi way of Jew Jewish life is modern. It's not traditional. It's a modern response to the challenge of modernity. It's about raising the walls when the actual walls are being brought down. So what you see is a mostly intra-Jewish debate where some Jews say that communism is the way forward and Bundism is the way forward or being Haredis and bringing up the walls is the way forward. But this is essentially an intra-Jewish debate as to how best to respond to the challenge of modernity. The World War II and the Holocaust basically end that debate because the various other forms uh prove themselves to be a failure. The communism and Bundism and even Haredi Judaism ultimately failed to protect Jewish life in Europe. And as a result, the only ideology that remains standing from the previous 50, 60, 70 years of intra-Jewish debate is Zionism. 
So by and large, almost everyone at this point, whether it's reform Jews on one hand, who also thought that they can live without Zionism, or you talked about Agudat Israel, they say, look, this is kind of the verdict of history. And we're going to be supportive of a Jewish state, each in its own way. And as a result, people like Satmar and Atura Karta become very, very marginal movements in, in the Jewish world. Now, pre-World pre -world War I, pre-World War II, Zionism was seen by many of the Orthodox as a threat to Orthodoxy. When you look at many of the many of the Zionist leaders, such as Achad Am, even Ben Gurion, they all came from religious families, and the the geist of Zionism sort of sucked them in and brought them into a different world. Maybe my imagination. I don't see anybody in Israel leaving yeshiva and becoming irreligious because of Zionism. How would you explain that? People would leave the religious world to become communists. They fell in love with communism. They left the yeshiva world, or the, or, the, or the many Hasidim, many of them were Hasidim, right, um, to become uh, 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 Bundists, to become Zionists. Yeah. And that inspiration, oh, I'm going to become a Zionist and, and leave leave religion, it, 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 it's gone. It's like, I don't know anybody who left religion because they became a Zionist. Like, what about that fascination, that flame that drew the moths to what, what changed? Even in America, we don't see Zionism as like people are leaving yeshiva for Zionism or leaving religion yeah. or leaving chassidut for Zionism. So I'm not understanding like why that, what was the flame then? What was the flame that was possibly? It could be. We were in such a distressed world and people were so impoverished and downtrodden. They were just looking for answers. And maybe now the world is just much more affluent and this peace. People just aren't looking for answers anymore. But would you agree with me that Zionism as a sort of a, a reason to pull Jews away from their religion, that sort of dissipated? Yeah, but that's uh, but that's because again, Zionism has been very successful in creating a place where you could be religious, you could be non-religious, you could be anything in between, uh, and that's been, I think, one of the most attractive things. So that you don't this notion that you need to leave a certain world in order to be Zionist is not relevant. There's a state of Israel, and people can be religious in whichever way they want. But I do think that the fact that the Haredi world invests so much in trying to prevent young men and women from going to the military is because they precisely understand that as soon as their young people are exposed to this world, the fact that they insist on an education that deprives especially young men from knowing English, from knowing math, shows that this is a worldview that actually fears interaction with the world, fears interaction with the, a generally somewhat secular Jewish state, because they know that if they send their boys to know English and math, and if they send their men and women to serve in the military, they fear, I think quite correctly, that they will not come back. So right now, this world, in many ways, having learned from the experience of everyone leaving the cheder and the yeshiva to become a Zionist, that fear is what now makes them invest so much in creating these walls so that people will not join the state because then they will see that you can be very much Jewish and secular and a Zionist and serve in the military and know English and know math 
And I think they fear <clears throat> that their world would certainly be on the same scale that it is today if the if the walls really came down. One last question that's not relevant to you as a historian, but maybe it is because historians live in the day too. What possible end game could there be in Gaza? In other words, they're going to crush the Hamas and they're going to have two million miserable people over there. And it's inevitable that from misery rises, you know, new types of uh, intifadas and new types of radicals. It just seems like an, a zero-sum game that there cannot be a victory. So I'm always amazed by the persistence of the idea that misery and poverty are what gives rise to terrorism and the battle against Israel. Uh, we heard that in the context of 9-11, and it didn't matter that all the perpetrators and planners of 9-11 were either middle class, wealthy, educated. People keep with this notion that poverty is behind uh, terrorism. Can, can, I, can I just, I didn't ask the question correctly. Sure. I think that religion, you mix religion into anything and you have suddenly like a joker in the, in the game, right? But, you know, with a rich history of religious uh, hatred, the Jimmies, et cetera, coming from Arabia, Maimonides writes a thousand years ago, he says, no nation hates us as much as the Muslims. And what they've done to us, this is going back to Yemen, what Muhammad did by killing all the tribes in Yemen, et cetera. So when you have peace, so toxic cultures often recede to the background. But when you have misery, it, it's like the yeast. It, it, it allows for the brewing of a very toxic culture. So you mix a, a culture that has a strong streak of hatred in it, right? Add it to misery. It's just an explosion waiting to happen. That's how I would ask the question. So I would say that there's a reversal of cause and effect there because the miserable conditions are the outcome of a set of very destructive priorities. Uh, essentially, for the last century, the Palestinians have repeatedly prioritized, with the support of the Arab and Muslim world and communism, uh, they've repeatedly prioritized uh, turning all their considerable uh, talents and uh, resources to the Jews not having a state. At any given moment, when given the choice that they could have their own state, but the Jews will also have their state, they always prefer to keep fighting from the river to the sea. So you can even see it on October 7th. Look at the massive investment in the tunnels. This required at least two years of preparation, strategic thinking. The notion that Palestinians are an incapable, miserable people that always need support, I think has been completely disproven. They're a, a capable people with terrible priorities. So the question here is, what would it take for the Palestinians to prioritize building something for themselves rather than destroying for someone else? And here, the role of religion or the role of what I call just worldviews is very important. I believe that there is nothing in Islam and the Arab world, and we're seeing it now happening in the Gulf, that precludes the possibility of embracing Zionism. I call it Arab Zionism or Islamic Zionism. It's entirely a possibility. Uh, religions are ultimately systems of interpretations. You can have different Muslim and Arab interpretations with respect to Zionism. So there's nothing to preclude that, uh, but it is certainly a matter of priority. So for me, the end game, the real end game is the one that I call Arab Zionism. It's the only way we get out of this cycle. When the Palestinians and the Arab world prioritize building something for themselves rather than diverting all their resources to destroying the Jewish state, 
we can finally have a vision for peace. And this is what I argue needs to be the vision for Gaza. Israel needs to make it very clear that at the end of the day, its vision is that the people of Gaza will rule Gaza for themselves. But we need to know that they really want to turn Gaza into a prosperous place when Palestinians make it clear that they've abandoned their century of anti-Zionism and they are ready to live next to the Jewish state rather than instead of it, that's the path forward. Actor Will, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Joining us from Cambridge is Professor Derek Penslar. He's a professor at Harvard University. He's also an expert on Zionism. He's written a book about the topic. Welcome, Professor Penslar. Well, thank you for having me. Great honor. So, Professor, tell me, what was the view that the Aguda, or the, the Orthodox Jewry, had about Zionism before the World War II? Why was it that way? And how, if it did at all, changed after the war? You know, it's funny. The answer to that question is not as easy as it might sound, because, you know, officially the Aguda, uh, from its very origins, was opposed to Zionism. And yet, uh, well, even before the Aguda was founded, one of its um, one of its future great leaders wrote at the time of the death of Theodor Herzl, he wrote that Herzl was a great man and that um, only a Jew is assimilated as Herzl would have had the chutzpah, basically, <laughs> to try to do what he did. And um, so there was, who wrote was that? I'm remember, I think it's Isaac Breuer okay. wrote that in 1904. And, um, you know, the Aguda obviously was officially opposed to Zionism, but the events of 1929 also made a, a big difference. Because in 1929, you know, Jews were attacked throughout Eretz Israel, and over 100 were killed, including a number of highly orthodox Jews, especially in Hebron, and um, the sense that Jews in general were in danger softened somewhat the Aguda's opposition to Zionism during the 1930s. I mean, there were always, there was always a split. So in the mid-30s, when the Jews of Palestine began to, uh, they demanded a tax to be paid to help support Jewish militia in Palestine, and they they carried out, I think, uh, training. Just give us some names. When you say there was a split, like who who suggested they pay the tax? Who was pro? Who was anti? Well, the, vaccinated, but they need. They would love to have some names. Okay. Well, if I want to go back to um, to a famous case of something that really got ultra orthodox or highly orthodox Jews angry at the Zionist movement, it was the assassination of of um, Dahan, Jacob Dahan, in the early 1920s. Uh, because he himself had emerged as a very strong opponent of Zionism and was on good terms with the government of Britain that controlled Palestine at the time. He was assassinated almost certainly at the hands of um, Haganah, that is the, the very early Zionist militia uh, leaders. And it might, it might be, I'm not saying this simply as Rechilis, I mean, it might very well be that Yitzhak Ben-Svi, the second president of the state of Israel, a very important figure in labor Zionism, played a role in ordering that assassination. So there was a lot of, um, you know, ill feeling between the ultra-Orthodox and the, let's say, secular labor Zionists. But um, 
to get back to 1929, I mean, what really happens is that the Yishuv, that is the Jewish community of Palestine, is led by people like David Ben-Gurion, Yitzhak Ben-Fi, Bel Katz-Nelson, and um, these people also create, or they allow the creation of a militia. I mentioned it earlier, the Haganah becomes much stronger in the 1930s under people like David Remez. And the tax called Kofer HaYishuv that was instituted in the mid-30s um, created a backlash, especially because the Haganah carried out its um, maneuvers on Shabbat. And so a very small faction uh, within the uh, ultra-Orthodox community of Jerusalem would be in the Edah Haradit, formed the Natura Karta, which uh, uh, basically argued that the entire Zionist enterprise was was flawed and considered this this tax and the fact that they were exercising on Shabbat and Hagin to be a good example of, you know, the, the wrong road, as it were, that the Zionist movement had taken. So that's the official position, but it changed a lot in, um, you know, 1947 on the eve of uh, the creation of the State of Israel. And I'm afraid I don't have the names right in front of me. Um, I'd have to look. I actually have a book with a document in which um, leaders uh, within the Aguda uh, speak about the uh, partition resolution of November 29, 1947, by which uh, the United Nations agreed to create a Jewish state, that there were um, Aguda leaders in, in New York and in Palestine who uh, were who wrote of this as as a kind of quasi or partially possibly messianic event they were they were very excited about it that's what i'm saying about the agud is that officially anti-zionist of course but there had been these smatterings of excitement or of sympathy going you know way back even before the state was created and and what changes what changes after world war ii well, the state of Israel is created, and the question is going to be what role will the Aguda, uh, will religious Zionism in general play? Well, what role will orthodoxy, I should say, play in the government? So you've got the National Religious Party, so you've got Mustal, the orthodox Zionist, and you've got the Aguda. They have very different views, obviously. But the question is, should both of them or either of them play a role in the, um, in the government? And this has been the ongoing tension within, I think, um, uh, the Aguda since 1948. So, you know, for example, the tendency to, um, after all, serving in the Knesset, serving in the parliament, serving on Knesset committees, serving as deputy ministers, but not as full cabinet ministers. Uh, you know, these are ways then that the Aguda can try to represent the interests of its constituencies within the state of Israel without violating certain principles of opposition to Zionism as an ideology. But they end up doing all of the above. They end up doing all of the above, and obviously as the state has grown, and particularly after 1977, when the Aguda re-entered the cabinet, uh, you know that the obviously the interests of the Aguda can be promoted through an alliance with the government. So funding for, obviously, funding for yeshiva students, funding for um, the ultra-Orthodox religious institutions, 
In other words, uh, politicians from the uh, Agudas Yisrael have known how to play the political game the same way that everybody else does. And they've done it very effectively, particularly since 1977. And it's been in their interest to be in coalition governments, which they've been in much of the time. I believe that they weren't in the government, you know, briefly under like Yitzhak Rabin's government between 1992 and 95. They weren't in the government and so on. But for the most part, they've been in the government and they have, uh, in other words, they have treated the state of Israel uh, as an institution with which one must work in order to promote the well-being of their constituents. That's just classic politics. But here's a question. Does the concept, for example, the Orthodox will not sit with, uh, on the same organization with the conservative or reform Jews? Because yes. of Al-Fasabal Rishon, we can't partner with those who are evildoers, and they believe that the reform are heretics, basically, right? Yeah. Why do they not have a problem sitting in the government, being that they, you know, many of these Zionists are either irreligious or some are even anti-religious? Why doesn't that same issue that we have up here in the United States sitting with conservative reform, which is almost unilaterally done, um, yeah. why is it different over there? How have they worked around it over there? Well, I think part of it has to do with uh, kind of a Dina de Malkuta Dina. That is, you're dealing with a state authority. And if you refuse to deal with a state authority, then you're actually treating it as if it were some kind of a special state. So, in other words, by just doing the daily business that one does with the state of Israel's government, it's just this is another government. I mean, after all, um, uh, Aguda politicians were not unaf- they, they didn't refuse to be involved in Polish politics during the 1920s and the 1930s. You know, Poland was a state, and they were involved in politics for the interests of their constituencies. So I think it has to do with the concept of treating Israel as, as, as a normal state, because if you don't, then you're acknowledging that it's a special kind of Jewish state, and that's, and that's a complicated thing. There was a great scholar himself from more from the Mafdal tradition named um, Avishai, um, no, what was it, uh, Ravitsky, Ravitsky, uh, who, uh, who, who wrote about this many years ago, and I think he was really on to something. So, yeah, so it's just business as usual. I mean, carrying on with a secular state the way that in Poland in the 1930s, people in the Aguda carried on with a secular state. Okay. Now, there are those who, who say that, and this is coming from the, you know, the Satmar opinion, et cetera, that the state has been a catastrophe for the Jews because we lived in peace with the Arabs for a thousand years, and we would actually be better off without the Zionist state because it's just created tremendous hatred in the 56 Muslim countries in the world, whereas if we would have just bowed our head and been subjugated to the Muslims in the state of Israel, we would be better off. As a historian, what do you think of that? Well, you know, history is not an experiment that we can run all over again. Like, we can't go back in time and say, okay, there's not going to be a state of Israel. Let's just see what happens to the Jews and to the Jews and Eretz Israel. So let's just kind of imagine that for a second. So let's imagine there's a small Jewish community in Eretz Israel and the uh, I don't know. The British never take over. Uh, it becomes a, you know, it becomes a Palestinian state, or it becomes part of a Syrian state. So what happens? First of all, Jewish immigration. Think of all those Jews who left Poland and other parts of Europe for Eretz Israel before 1939. Well, they wouldn't have been allowed into some kind of an Arab state. So all of them would have been killed. 
on top of the six million that would have been, you know, another several hundred thousand would have been killed. Uh, what about after World War II, when life became absolutely impossible for Jews in, uh, you know, Jews who wanted to return to Poland were murdered. Um, you know, uh, they wouldn't have been allowed to immigrate to the to the land of Israel. So from a purely demographic point of view, it's kind of hard to imagine that the Jews would have been better off without the creation of the state of Israel. Now, I understand the religious, spiritual objections to the state. I mean, my own views are somewhat different, and I think the state of Israel was a great contribution to uh, the spiritual life of the Jewish people, but I respect other points of view. The only thing I would say is that within the ultra-Orthodox community, of course, there is division regarding uh, Zionism in Israel. The Lubavitchers are quite, uh, the Lubavitch movement is quite up on Zionism in Israel and really quite, um, in some ways, rather militant about it. And we've seen ultra-Orthodox Jews volunteering in the state of Israel in record numbers in the last two months to do volunteer work for the Israel Defense Force, um, you know, as auxiliaries. This is something new. So I think there's changes within the ultra-Orthodox world in their attitudes towards the state of Israel. And wasn't it, wasn't it Aaron Teitelbaum, the Satmar Rebbe of Williamsburg, who just a couple of weeks ago was talking about the, I mean, genuine, genuine compassion for the uh, murdered victims of October 7th and providing charity and assistance for the communities and so forth? I thought I read about that in the Yeshiva world. Yeah, that's true. So do you, as a historian, do you see ultimately the the divide over the state of Israel narrowing and the religious community ultimately embracing the state of Israel? Yeah, I do, actually. I understand, again, there's a lot of division within the religious community. There's the, you know, rather, the really militant Dati Lumi, and then within the Haredi community, there's a lot of division. But I think this war is accelerating a trend that goes back a good six, seven, eight years with the, you know, the, uh, uh, the Haredi battalion that goes back a few years. It was only a few hundred people, but still you had some Haredi men volunteering for, uh, for military service. Uh, Nahal Yehuda, I think it's called. Um, so I think that this melding or merging within the ultra-Orthodox community and the state of Israel is going to, uh, is going to continue in if I can go out on a limb for just a second, I see it as kind of equivalent to changes in the economic life of Haredi men. You know, I finished a book about 15, 20 years ago. At that time, about a third of Haredi men had gainful employment. Now it's up to two-thirds. I mean, there's been a huge change in the kind of integration of ultra-Orthodox men in the state of Israel into economic life in the state, just the kind of jobs they do and, you know, the relationship between them and and the yeshiva world. So I think it's actually all one big story of a gradual integration of the uh, highly orthodox, ultra-orthodox um, into the uh, state of Israel, its society, and its economy. What do you see? Um, you know, sometimes the historian, if you look back, you could also look forward. When you look at the current conflict, look out a year. Where do you see Israel? Oy. I wish I could say that I know, and I wish I could say I know something good. But I'll tell you as a historian, I feel that when a country goes into a war socially divided, and Israel was, you know, it was divided between those who supported the government and those who opposed it, 
those who supported the changes in the judiciary the government wanted and those who opposed them. Usually a war brings the people together, and it's brought Israeli Jews together. There's no question about it. But when the war ends, those divisions are still there. I'm afraid they're going to become very stark. My prediction, again, you know, don't hold me to it, is that Netanyahu's own government will fall. And I think there will be a more centrist government. My guess is that it's a government, though, that will continue to need uh, for its coalition's own survival. Uh, the, um, you know, it'll, it'll need the current equivalents of the Aguda, you know, the uh, um, uh, United Torah Judaism uh, party, uh, which will just continue to be an essential component of the government. But I do think that the prime minister and the ruling party will change. And where do you see the country you know, Gaza, religious, like, do you see continued success for Israel? Do you, are you concerned about its survival? Like, give us a historian's view. You look back 100 years, look forward a number of years. Well, I always consider myself a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. That is, you know, the creation of the state of Israel was an impossibility, and yet it happened. And here we are 76 years later. Um, the state is in danger. It's in danger just in terms of sheer military threat. But I've always worried more about the threat of, um, you know, civil internal disputes. And there, there are a couple of possibilities lying ahead. One is that Israel becomes a state, you know, more like, like Hungary or Slovakia or something, which basically it just doesn't have the kind of democratic government it has now. The other possibility, though, and this is what worries me, is the state of Israel actually becomes divided into various camps, you know, different kinds of orthodoxy, the kind of more liberal secular world of Tel Aviv, maybe settlers, uh, not non-Haredi settlers in the West Bank. And someone's described it as Israel becoming like Lebanon. And I really hope that doesn't happen. I'm worried that it that it might. So I, I've got to admit, I am worried for Israel's future. But was it Heim Weizmann once said, you don't have to be Meshuggah to be a Zionist, but it helps. And I really think that the kind of impossibilities that Jews have uh, overcome in the past to create the state of Israel and to sustain it, obviously nothing looked good for the Jews in the 1930s or 40s. They did create the state, and here it is today. So despite my worries, I do remain hopeful uh, that the state of Israel and the Jewish people and its friends throughout the world uh, will help the state to overcome its current crisis and to flourish in the future. Professor, thank you very much. That was beautiful. And I wish you a happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Hanukkah as well. Joining us from New York is Reb Schneier Burton. He's a senior editor of Artscroll. He's written many svarim, including Haaretz, Asher Areka, Ayres Yaakov, etc. Welcome, Reb Schneier. Hello, Reb David. It's so nice to be here. So why is Eretz Yisrael central to the Tyra? Ah, that is a favorite topic of mine, uh, something which I started getting into uh, three, four years ago because I felt that it's, uh, it's a question that unfortunately didn't get enough attention in, in the yeshiva world and the world that I'm steeped in. Um, we all know all the sources in Chazal about how important that Israel is, but I felt that we have to, as a, as a Torah community, we have to re-engage with that question and start learning it again from the sources. And what I discovered, and I speak about this at length and I wrote about this and speak about this at length in my lectures, is that the, I, the concept, the idea of Eretz Yisrael is that 
the Torah's objective is not a private objective. The Torah doesn't just want the human to perfect himself. The Torah wants a perfect society. The objective of the Torah is that we create a society of justice, of righteousness, a society of, of the halach, the bedrach, a society where we emulate Hashem's kindness and, and His justice in the world. And to that end, we need a state. The state is so fundamental to the Torah because the Torah wants us to, to uh, replicate Hashem's justice, Hashem's cosmic justice, on, in the human scale. And the human scale means within a human community, within a, within a human society. So I think that, that as a nation who we've been deprived, unfortunately, of, of, of statehood for thousands of years, I think we, saw, we, we began to um, underestimate or, or not consider the centrality of statehood to the Torah. And Torah became more of a private thing for the individual. But if we re-engage and say, you know, what, what really is the Torah really all about? And what, why is it so important? What we'll find is that the, the goal, the, the objective of the Torah is for us to, to create a just and perfect society. And for that, we need a state of like-minded people, people who are studying the same Torah, inspired by the same ideas, who can then together try to, try to uh, materialize, actualize you know, the Torah's ideals. So how would the Torah's vision of Eretz Yisrael be implemented today? So to me, the first thing, and this is what I worked on so much, is to uh, refocus it as a, as a subject matter of, of study. You know, the, I feel the energy, the, the greatest energy for getting things done uh, in, nationally for the Jewish people, there's so much untapped energy in, in the Torah world. It means to say our inspiration for the greatest projects, for the greatest Jewish projects comes from the Torah. So I felt that um, we, have to, we have to sort of reintroduce, of course, that's just all that's ever been off the radar, but I felt that we have to bring it back to center of Torah study. I see it as, I see it in the following. I think that if the, if the Loimbe Torah, if the Torah world, Yeshiva world, Lakewood, etc., can see the subject, the, the sugya of living in that soul as a, as a sugya worthy of deep study, which is how I found it from, from actually engaging in deep study of it. Really a sugya that you can think about the Ian, you can think about the depths of the meaning of that soul, just like you think about other aspects of Torah. I think that's where we can create a certain energy that then people can think about how to put it in practice. And I think it's so important, you know, people tend to take the reality of the state of Israel, and that affects how we think about um, what the Torah wants from us as well. What I mean to say is that people tend to, people are somehow a little bit afraid of engaging with the topic of Eretz Yisrael because they may or may not fully agree with everything that the state stands for. And that's very unfortunate because Obviously, the Torah is not about the state of Israel, and yet the Torah wants us to have a state in Eretz Israel. So in order to think about, okay, what does the Torah want from us, you have to sort of disengage with the reality. Don't take the facts on the ground as, you know, it's not like a binary question, am I pro-Israel, am I pro the state of Israel in its current form or not? We have to say, look, what do the books say? What do the texts say? And through engaging with the, with the idea of it, so on a Torah level. Through that becoming a subject that should be studied in yeshivas and talked about, I feel like that's where we can increase the energy and that could develop into doing something about it. What does it look like specifically? Uh, there's so much to say about that. Obviously, the most basic idea is taking what the Torah cares about, taking the midos that the Torah cares about, and making those operative on a societal level. So, of course, all the wonderful Chesed, all the wonderful stuff, all the wonderful mishpat, justice, righteousness, kindness, that halacha is all about, that the Torah teaches us, 
but trying to also create institutions, community institutions, and then national political institutions that reflect that. The Shalosh says on the Pasuk, Yitzchalonu Esnachoseinu, as Go'in Yaakov Ashoheselah, he makes a cheshven that around 252 of the uh, Taryag mitzvahs you could do bizman and the, and the rest you can't do because we don't have Go'in Yaakov, we don't have Klal Yisrael, the Mamadai, in Eretz Yisrael. So, like what you say, returning, going back to Eretz Yisrael, the way it was meant to be, is called Go'in Yaakov, he says, and that's, he, he calls that in, in the Midas, he calls that Malchus, and the Malchus of Dribbani mm-hmm. Shalom is Kirai. So, mm-hmm. what is the anti-Zionist, what you call anti-Zionist Torah perspective today? Yeah, so, when, when I studied this, so, I, I said, look, let's, let's embrace this sugyo, let's get into it impartially, like I said earlier, I felt like it's a, it's a sugya that, that doesn't get engaged with properly um, in the same level of Ian as other sugyas, and it's time to fix that. So I went into it and, of course, looked at all the sources of that, looked at all the Sfarim, and one of the most important Sfarim written about Zionism is the Begilei Meishim, Um And that's what people would probably call an anti-Zionist. Age. And let's be clear here, when we talk about Zionism, Zionism is one of those words that means different things to different people. So that's why I try to avoid that word because I feel like it doesn't, it, it's just not a clear word. You know, people, people approach me and say, oh, so are you a Zionist? I'm saying, look, tell me what you mean by Zionist, and then we could talk about it. And that's sort of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to refocus Eretz Israel as a Torah subject, and then let's see where the chips fall after we engage with it in that way. But we can't call the other militia, certainly the Satmar of Shita, we can call that an anti-Zionist safer. And I studied that safer a few times. I, um, I reached out to the Tamid Chachamim, who were Talmidim of Satmar, with some questions and clarifications. Uh, it's a magnificent safer, truly a magnificent safer. Really my conclusions, I think you can see from the conversation thus far, and certainly my safer will uh, illustrate this, my conclusions are very different than the conclusions of the Satmarov. But this is a, this is a very important point, which I realized, um, that a lot of the Satmarov's opposition, in my opinion, a lot of his opposition to the Zionist project is a localized opposition. It has to be understood in context, in historical context. The reality 70 years ago, and I'm, I'm no historian, but I could just say this, uh, you know, it's a truism that everyone's aware of. The reality of the, the project of the founding of the state of Israel, it was a very secular project. And there was a great danger at the time of this, this, this secular project, the founding of state, usurping the traditional role of Torah and mitzvahs as, as being the defining feature of Judaism. And from what I understood from studying the Sefer of the Yom that was the Satmarov's main concern. He was fighting tooth and nail against this threat to traditional Judaism. And this is why I tell people who quote the Satmarov as an authority on this matter, I don't think they're being faithful to his shita because I think that he himself would have wanted a person to reevaluate the, the, the stance towards uh, engaging with Eretz Yisrael today, given that the reality today is so different from what it was 70 years ago. Even though the Gimel, the Gimel Shuas don't sound very, I mean, if we accept the, as he did, the Gimel Shuas as halacha, and if mm-hmm. you accept them remarkably that they're Yerig Valyava, right? Right. It yes. doesn't seem that he would that he would change much today in that respect. In that respect, I agree. I don't think he would change much. Um, I think his main, I think his main concern though was was the reality, the reality of of the risk of people being swept up in this wave of which was a, a new Judaism. Um, the point about the Shavuos is really interesting. There's, there's of course so much to talk about that. Basically, his argument of the Shavuos is we're waiting for Mashiach. What he doesn't explain much is 
what exactly does that mean? So what are we waiting for? Or what are we supposed to do as part of that process? Or are we supposed to do anything as part of that process? That's where things get a little bit uh, unclear to me. It's certainly very clear that at that that he believed 70 years ago to the founding of the state is, is a transgression of the Shavuiz. What I question is whether he would also say that if from Yidin today, if from Yidin, with the whole Torah perspective, would engage with Israel as a Torah, as, as a greatest ideal of the Torah, I don't, I'm not sure that, they, that he would consider that uh, a transgression of the Shavuiz in, in today's, today's reality. Because, because why? Um, because, because, like I said, he doesn't explain what, uh, what basically what Geula does look like. Well, it has um, to be, it has to be Alizei Melech HaMashiach, and anything without Melech HaMashiach would be a Marid in the Amim, right, and an Ali on the Chaima, and he held that that's, uh, that, that that's being either the Gimel Shuvah, and, and it's Yerik Val yeah. So how could you, because I don't know how he could possibly make peace with that once he draws that okay. into Halacha. Right, okay, so I'll say one aspect of that. Let's say one of the major aspects that he discusses is um, his understanding of the severity of the Shuvah is that it's, uh, it's Kfira. It's heresy to believe that we can retake our soul without, as you said, not. But let's talk about one component of that. One component of it is that the, 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 the way the Torah describes the coming of the Shiach is that it's going to be preceded with a great wave, with a great wave of, of tshuva. And to believe that we can take our soul without tshuva is, is uh, kfira. So that's, that's part of the severity of the shuvah, according to Zamra. That's obviously an argument against taking our soul in a secular way. If, if our embracing our soul would be part of tshuva, in, in the way he defines it, then that argument falls. So that's why I see his argument as being a very targeted argument. To well, well, he says you, you would need to have rishos of all the umas ayolam, which he doesn't believe we had. And today, you know, if you don't believe that the Balfour Declaration gave us permission, we certainly don't have more permission today than we had then. And that's and that's incontrovertible. Yeah. And you can't you can't yeah. how do you how do you do away with that? Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I totally agree with you. I don't think I'm not. I, I wouldn't commit to saying that every single point uh, that he raises uh, would, is different today, but I think many of them are, such as my example of Tshuva. I think that a from embrace of it, so coming from Torah would not, be, uh, would not be restricted based on that argument. I also think that the facts on the ground, I think maybe, maybe he might accept that that creates a, a, a reality. I don't think anyone thinks that we need permission anymore because we're, not, uh, because we're there. You know, yeah, but but it all it all, start, it all you're all there illegally. That's what he that's what he, that's what they believe. Yeah, they, they they. I like the way you said they because I agree with that. That that is definitely the the the, the reigning idea that people think uh, as being his opinion. But I'm not so sure that 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 he would say that. I think he was fighting against a movement of taking Eretz I'm not sure that he would say that. Uh, just 75 years later. If something was done incorrectly, that means that we're still waiting for permission. You know, it's like who are we asking permission from? It's like a meaningless thing at this point. Well, they believe that you should give it back to the to the Arabs. They'll tell you, you know, bring in an Arab well, dictator or an Arab, you know. Yeah, I doubt that the Samarov would have advised that. <laughs> what do you think? I don't think he would advise that today. That's what I mean to say. The reality reality has tells its own story, and I think I don't think that that any uh, serious uh, Yerushalayim would think that that's that's a good idea today. Okay, so so you think you believe that the Satmar Rebbe today would agree with the the, the Yishuv of Eretz Yisrael the way the or is he, the way it is today? He he wouldn't he wouldn't ask for the expulsion of the or leaving Eretz Yisrael. Certainly not. So I know he certainly wouldn't ask for the expulsion. And, and but more importantly, my main point is that uh, I think when he he want he would have embraced a a a, a centralizing Eretz Yisrael in a Torah from a Torah perspective. I don't think that's what he would have. That's what he objected to. His objection was to the fact that it was the secular that were that were running after Eretz Yisrael. 
Um, I think that that if we were to develop, to develop a chibur v'etzisrael that's coming from the Torah, I don't think that his objective, his objections would, would would even restrict that. In the main, in the main, I, I definitely agree with you. There are some points there that 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 may be still relevant, but I think his main problem, his, his main fight, was against secularization of Judaism. And for that, I think what we have to do is we have to say, you know what, Israel is not a secular concept. Israel is a fundamentally a Torah concept. And the more we think about why that's the case and then how we could do something about it, the more we're going to be doing it in a way that uh, the Torah wants us to do. And even the quote-unquote anti-Zionists of 75 years ago wouldn't necessarily object to. Rav thank you very much for your time. Greatest pleasure, David. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.